There it is. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Look at that. We got Graham Battison in here. Our sponsor, Puget Sound Pythons. Dustin Gran, Gran, Ben Frame, Thomas Irvin, Brad so Clark. The I, usual I, suspects. I saw the usual suspects, and I went to go comment, but I can't. And I realized that because like, I never type on this thing because, let's face it, I can't multitask to save my life. But I, I go to, to like say hello because I actually have time or like the mindset to do it. And I physically can't because I'm not like logged in. I just realized so, no one can probably hear me because my mic's all the way across the table. No, no, we heard you. We heard you. <clears throat> Hen dog's here. Now you're very loud. I love it. That's, yeah. You know. Uh, this is episode 65. 65. Stephen Poole's here. Uh, Xavier Walker. Uh, all that good stuff. So, yeah. like I said, this show is brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. Um, Billy Jenkins said, as you, as you the kids say, we are live. Sean's here. What's up, Sean? Brandon Valentine said, Yo. so check your Instagram messages when you get a chance. Yeah, I actually I just sat down to like set this up, and I saw I've got like a bunch of messages. So let me let me just do that now while we're in the in, in the communications. Um, what's funny is every time we do, you know, Puget Sound Pythons, blah blah blah. I don't know if you guys remember, but if you ever listen to Sirius XM, there's a channel called Lithium that does like all like '90s alternative and like grungy shit, which is mm-hmm. right up my alley. And there was this whole thing that was like. Uh, the calm, soothing sounds of the Puget Sound. And, like, I wanted to get that audio clip <laughs> and, like, redo it or, like, like re- re-record it with Puget Sound Python. So I may still do that. I just, I got to find it. Brandon said it's very cringe. So forewarning. All right. There he is. Um, and before we jump into it, um, I am smoking the Perdomo ESV maduro uh this is a churchill so everyone can see it and uh this is in the latest sampler for the month um so what you can expect from this one compared to last last week's which was the perdomo 20th anniversary uh six five four eight um this one's gonna be a lot richer it's gonna be fuller i have a bit more going on we have these and the uh it's also comes in a connecticut I prefer the Connecticut between the two, but I figured since that pack had a handful of Connecticut's, like three of them were Connecticut's out of the five, let's throw some Maduro's in there. So there was this one, and there was the Oliva Siri V uh, Torpedo. Um, so I'm going to smoke this. I should have... Oh, look at that. Thomas said that's about what he's about to light up. Um, I should have. I wanted to stop and get some dark chocolate or something and talk about sort of like palate cleansing and stuff. If you really want to get into a cigar and sort of explore all the flavors and stuff. Uh, hey, Xavier said he's smoking his first cigar tonight. What is it? <clears throat> so, uh, if you've ever done an Ashton event at any of your local shops, if they do events and if they have Ashton, um, they do this sort of tasting thing where you pay for a ticket, but you get two or three cigars uh they usually bring a liquor i think it's usually zaya they may have changed it up since uh which is an aged rum it's not a spice drum it's not like captain morgan it's not a dark rum like the kraken um and then they bring dark chocolate they bring almond like just regular raw almonds unsalted 
And the whole point of that is, uh, ooh, San Cristobal. Those are really good. I like a lot of the San Cristobal stuff. Um, so you eat the almonds that dries your mouth out, and then you eat the dark chocolate that cleanses your palate, similar to like what dark coffee or uh, black coffee will do. And then you'll smoke. And if you have both the cigars, they give you lit up at the same time. You get a good idea of sort of the differences between the uh, Oscuro and the Maduro or the uh, like the Mia Moore and the Mia Moore Reserva, which the difference is one's an Oscuro, one's a San Andreas Maduro. Um, so it's pretty cool to get to see and taste the, uh, the differences. And I highly recommend people give it a shot. So any like dark chocolate. You know, like the little dove dark chocolates that come wrapped individually. Eat one of those, smoke a cigar, and you'll be amazed at how many more flavors you're getting out of it. And then there's the importance of retrohaling. So you're using all of your taste buds, not just the oral ones, but also your nasal. And uh, that takes practice, and a lot of people are kind of scared to do it, but you do get a lot more out of the cigars that way. So You may cough once or twice because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing. Like you have to think about doing it probably the first one or two times you do it. Um, but it really does change everything. Um, and uh, just for the record, I know Justin's not paying attention, but tonight I am smoking the warped 88. In my opinion, it is becoming a timeless classic. Those are good. Those were in the, uh, those were in one of the samplers, I think. Yeah. Like a month so, or two ago. I don't know why it's not, it's got one of my favorite bands of any cigar because it doesn't say, yeah, it doesn't say warped on it. It just says 1988. So let me see if I can get it to to actually focus. It's a little washed out, but hold on. So like there's the 1988 mm -hmm. and then. Which that's a, that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because people come yeah. in very confused. They're like, it had a bunch of numbers on it. You know, I don't like, frankly, our clientele is older. Uh, and so they want things that stand out like this and I, yeah. I make i make a joke all the time about you know smoking cigars that look like a freaking pokemon card uh but for the older folks this kind of stuff helps even though half the time they're they're like i smoked a cigar last week i can't remember what it was yeah um uh basically like do you know what it might have been is the the question they're pretty much asking without asking it yeah that's like what and color was it it's funny you bring up like foil foil bands and you know the overall appearance and aesthetics of a cigar because I actually had <laughs> Rob Calloway message me this afternoon saying, "Hey, I really want to. I'm going to get my first cigar tonight. You know, I've been looking at. Uh, I think he was saying Gurkha and Roma because Justin and I always talk about Gurkhas and Romas, um, and it was difficult because like not knowing Rob outside of reptiles like mm -hmm. i don't know like what i don't know what kind of guy he is you know what i mean i don't know what, he, what, what kind of you know, taste he may have so like i told him to go to drew estate just because it's a cornucopia of catalog you know they've, i mean they've literally they literally have said everything everybody. yeah so I, I basically told him i was like listen if you want to try a flavored something just to get the ball rolling go for it i said but you know don't get an acid you know go for like a java or something if you like coffee you know and kind of roll with that and then to be honest, I told him just to get a normal Monte Cristo Habano. You know, it doesn't have to be Cuban per se, but you know, just a normal Monte Cristo that's moderate. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I don't know if he's ready yet because he's in the UK, and I'm sure it's past his bedtime. Yeah, he hasn't ready yet. Um, like I said, he's in the UK; it's past his bedtime. But I'm eager to see what he says tomorrow and uh, kind of go from there. Hopefully, he listens to this too. <laughs> so, 
but yeah, just going back to those foil bands, um, the Pokemon cards. Sorry, sorry, cards, Um, like for example, I like most Gurkhas. Don't get me wrong. There's a bunch of Gurkhas that are kind of meh, but like the Ghost, like that has one of the coolest coolest bands ever, and it's just, it's just, mm-hmm. good, it's just not a good smoke. It's just, it, like I noticed a trend. Like a lot of there's some companies that put a lot of resources and work into the packaging of the cigar and less on the product. And then you have guys like Roma where everything's very minimal, but they, they do that because they prefer to put more emphasis and work into the actual product itself, which is fine. I mean, Gurkha is like, that's one of the biggest brands. Like they have a ton of stuff. I have people ask for Gurkha all the time. There's a couple that I like, but out of their portfolio, but in my opinion, they're like a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, portfolio is just so big that I still see some online for sale like Gurkhas that I didn't even know existed and it's because it's like a, a certain website that's their their exclusive release and I don't know it's just there's some companies where they just have too too many SKUs there's like literally too many cigars to pick from Rocky's another good example that like I always see a Rocky that I've never seen before it's like when does it end mm-hmm. you know they have like their core line and then there's a bunch of other iterations and uh, just it gets out of hand yeah yeah <clears throat> this is good like i said i like the connecticut a little more but still solid and yeah. uh yeah i actually uh I, I wanted to be a little i was in a coffee mood and I, like i've been drinking a lot of coffee lately i don't know like i, I always drink a lot of coffee but more than usual, I should say. Um, and when I grabbed this warped, I was like, you know what? I have I have a couple different kinds of creamers just because I'm that guy. And Henry, Hendog, was insistent that the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Coffee Mate or whatever brand it was, was to die for. So I got it. And I won't lie, it's pretty fucking awesome. Like, I heard uh, someone doing that, uh, like rum chata stuff, mixed with yeah, or like coquito or whatever, like mixed with Bailey's or something like that. There's some sort of liquor that like you mix that rum chata with, and it's stupid good. Yeah, which uh, is like the cinnamon in the creamer <clears throat> and the cigars mm-hmm. is really going. Yeah, pretty good. I actually my last sale tonight when I was at the shop before I closed, I had a guy come in. He was drinking tequila, which tequila is not an easy liquor to pair cigars with or i guess really anything for that matter yeah um, yeah but that is what i gave him because it does have that sort of slight grassiness and that slight bitterness to it that would yeah. that would go hand in hand with a tequila well and that's that's one of the few cigars that i pick when people are are parent you know planning on drinking tequila straight because it's not something you want to drink a maduro with that's just not going to work you know yeah. the, they're, they're opposing flavors uh but yeah, something, something like that. It's just a little, little kind of that tartness, that sharpness to it, just yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, so. Yeah, and l- less oil. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a a, a, a a legitimate medium, less oil. And it's funny you mentioned like tequila and like I can't imagine. Yeah, let me rephrase that. I know that if I, I'm not a tequila guy, but like let's say you're enjoying like a legitimately nice well-crafted sipping tequila or just drinking tequila. It's, you're not making a mixed cocktail. I feel like most cigars would be extremely, uh, uh, I'm going to use the word controversial, but like 
clashing. You know what I mean? You're, you're almost mm -hmm. destroying one and then you don't get to enjoy the other. So That actually sounds good. Ramchata. Limon Sayo and lemon cake equals lemon cake. And then Thomas said Cuban coffee goes really well with cigars. Yes, it does. And that's like all we drink here is Cafe Bustelo because it's super cheap and it's really good because I usually if I'm drinking coffee, it's black. I just <laughs> to me, that is the best thing to pair with cigars is just black coffee. Um, I don't know. I would like to to go to the local coffee shop and get some some dip better stuff, change it up a little bit just because we've been drinking that Cafe Bustelo for months now and it's Every now and then you need to, you know, put a little extra money into, into that. Yep. You got to come down to me and, and we'll have hen dog take us to a uh, Havana Harry's. And we'll get real cafecito, real coquito. But Bill asked, as far as like the big brands, uh, he said, is that something maybe because they're sold regionally or something? And then he said, or would a big cigar store have an entire series of four brand? See, that one's kind of tough, especially the second one, because you have to think about it. Uh, cigars, it's very much dependent on you have to kind of pick and choose your battles because you're sort of rolling the dice on not only just a line, but the different sizes in that same line. So you look at someone like a company like Southern Draw, where they have a really good portfolio, but they do so many sizes in each line that it's insane. And so it's like, do you bring all of them in? And maybe sell a couple of like maybe only two of the five are popular. And so then you're stuck with the rest. Or do you only bring in two that you know are, are more like customers overall tend to like Robusto's is probably the most popular cigar size in cigars in like industry wise. Um, so you, you just bring in Robusto's and Toro's or the Gordo's, which is like a six by 60. And then cool. you have like, then you have Lanceros, which you know, like the hardcore cigar nerds love Lanceros. So it's like, do you bring in a box of those? So it's a gamble because if you don't, uh, if you don't sell them, you're kind of stuck with them in a sense. And I mean, it's not like they go bad; they do get better over time. But you have to really be careful because you're sort of juggling. Like there's a there's a equilibrium where they cross of getting them sold in a in a semi quickly fashion to where you're not. Like the longer they sit, they they do lose money over time because it's just inventory and stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's tough. Some some shops are like my shop that I work at. We're a big Drew Estate account. You know, for obvious reasons, we have Liga Privada. Like you don't just get Liga Privada just because you have Drew Estate. You have to sell a certain amount of Drew Estate to carry that. Um, we're a big Perdomo account. We sell a ton of Perdomo. That's just popular. Uh, a lot of Oliva, and I think I mean you're gonna see that. Uh, I mean, there's some like Rocky, Rocky lounges. There's Rocky Patel lounges. There's Monte Cristo lounges. Yeah. Your shop used to be a Monte Cristo lounge, wasn't it? There's no, 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 it, it is. It was a, a mom and pop joint and they sold out to Monte Cristo. And uh, I don't know how they're doing now because of COVID and I haven't been there in several, many, many moons, but um, it, it is heavily Monte Cristo, but they know that they can't just be Monte Cristo. Like they have to have other plate, other companies. And I think, when the new regime came in because they, they transitioned to Monte Cristo and then they were that for a few years and then they went under new management and staff left and people went on to other things. They cut back, <clears throat> excuse me, they cut back on a lot of boutique brands. Like they got yeah. rid of Romacraft, you know what I mean? But at the same time, they brought in smaller stuff like Jericho Hill. So, I mean, I don't think that's a fair, you know, trade-off, yeah. but, but at the same time, you know, you're still getting a good, good branded product. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, I was going to say, just going back to like the Drew Estate stuff, um, there's almost too much. And I think I've asked you this before, but like you being the, uh, uh, doing orderings for the shop and stuff of the bigger brands, is there, um, for lack of a better word, opening orders? Like, like stuff like, that's on back order? No, no, no. Like, do you have to buy so much in order to get, you know, the, the more desirable product? Like, do they do that? And I'm not talking about like like getting Liga. You know what I'm I mean? Talking about like the H, like the H99s recently. Yes, exa- exactly. Yeah, we blew through. They were like, <laughs> so that one's that one's tough. Um, obviously, when someone like Drew Estate has a new cigar that they're dropping, especially if it's a Liga, everyone in the states is going to lose their mind over it because Liga Pravada has firmly established itself as one of the top lines of cigars, one of the most popular lines of premium cigars of all time. And so when you announce that you're having a, a, a new release and you haven't had a new release in that line in I don't know how long, very long time, I'd say I want to say it's about probably at least 10 years, maybe even longer than that. Um, people like the hype, the hype thing is very real. And so like these H99s, they've been teasing them for years saying, you know, advertising them like they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And then for whatever reason, they I think originally they planned on doing like a lottery system for the shops that that are, you know, Drew Estate accounts, uh, like Drew Estate lounges. Um, and I think maybe they scrapped that idea because I think it maybe pissed off a lot of people or something. I don't know. But uh, then it ended up we had that we had a digital event. A we had the actual physical event at the shop Saturday night, uh, but we had two boxes of H99s come in. There was a whopping 48 of them total between the two boxes gone. What they sell for? Uh, those were slightly more expensive than the other ones, and they were seventeen ninety five or eighteen fifty. I think. Oh man, I was I was gonna say they were. I was expecting to be like thirty bucks. No. no. Oh, because I mean, shit. I I would honestly, I'd pay thirty bucks for that just to mm-hmm. just to get it through. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we sold through those 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 two boxes in a heartbeat. Uh, and who knows when we'll get more in. It's just one of those things. But, you know, it's it's one of those businesses. And, I mean, that's where I differ from from the owner, you know, is like I'm all about, like, sell it. Get it out there. Get it going, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he's he likes to, especially when it comes to limited stuff like that, he likes to kind of limit people a little bit more. And, I mean, obviously, if we just get something in, some guy rolls in and wants to buy the box, like, literally isn't putting it on the shelf. I'm probably going to no. be like, look. You know, we only have so many of these. We don't know when to get them back in. So it's, I guess it's a little different, but like, if it's like the, uh, I mean, there's been times where we've had to sort of ration out the Andalusian bulls. Really? Because those got cigar of the year back in 2017, I think it was. And they've struggled to keep up with the demand on those still. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a point where like we could not get them in. And so anytime we did get a box or two, we had to ration them out and it would be like, there would be a limit on them because Dudes will come in and literally buy a whole box, like a box of 10. And like I said, for me, it's kind of like, you know, we're here to sell cigars. You know, I'm not into rationing things out, but sometimes it is warranted and I get it. So, Yeah. Uh, personally, like I understand your, your thought on that, but on something like the H99, I would, I would, you would, you'd have to ration out because think about the clientele that you're going to, for lack of a better word, piss off. Because they were expecting to possibly get one, and then mm-hmm. if, God forbid they find out that one guy came in and bought them all. Not only are they going to hate that guy, but they're going to be kind of disappointed in in, in us to say because we didn't 
I don't want to say ration them out, but like I know uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm in I'm in the firearms industry, and like there are certain companies that I don't buy from because if they come out with if they have ten you know let's say they have ten guns in their product catalog, right? But two of them are highly sought after. I have to spend a hundred thousand dollars on all the other stuff that you don't. On all want. the other crap yeah. that's probably going to sit there just so I can get one or two yeah. of those desired models. So um, it's funny, uh, Steve. I was actually going to tell you that I was going to say we have a couple questions in the in the column over there. Um, me personally, my favorite bourbon. What's your favorite have, bourbon to drink with a cigar? For my people favorite, that are listening to this right. post live. Sorry, sorry. Um, the uh, oh my god, now I can't remember the double oaked. Uh, who the hell makes that? Grand Reserve. Grand Reserve. Grand Reserve double oaked. I like that with a like a, a Padron sixty four. Woodford. Woodford. I'm sorry. That's what it's it's Woodford. Yeah, it's Woodford Grand Reserve Double Oaked. Woodford uh, was going to be my pick too. That's that's one bourbon that every time, man, it's just good. Yeah, it's not crazy expensive. It's delicious, and I'm not like I was never a big drinker before, but I'm even less of a drinker now. Just out of personal preference, but Woodford, that's good stuff. Yeah, I was going to say. So the the uh, the Woodford. Uh, reserve double oaked with a Padron 64. And then another one that I'm really um, a big fan of, and you'd expect them to clash because of the color differential, but they really do blend well is I like an angel's envy with the tabernacle, a tabernacle and a Toro with a, with a, with an angel's envy. They're both a little intense. Yeah. Kind of up front. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's, I mean, that's, I've talked about it in a previous episode where we kind of went in depth on pairings, but my, my rule is there are no rules, you know, like yeah. Phil's, Phil's pairing of angel envy with a, you know, a tabernacle, um, will be great to him, to somebody else, to me, to Jeff, to Thomas, you know, it, they may not be into it. Yeah. You know, they may like captain Morgan with something super spicy, you know, some sort of Habano that's just a pepper bomb, but yeah it just it's whatever works for you i mean i i typically like the loose sort of guideline i tend to follow is try to match the the color of the liquor with the color of the cigar obviously you don't want a really light scotch paired with a super dark maduro yeah i mean it it may work but for the most part i try to keep them similar so that's that's just my take um and then brandon valentine asked i don't know much about cigars but how many cigars come in and out per month week etc in your shop or in general would you say i mean that's tough uh like today i sold probably two or three boxes at least it's probably more that's probably a loose estimation uh, but even then, like we had that cigar event Saturday night and I don't, we sold probably 10 plus boxes. And I mean, that's a minimum of 20 cigars. So that's, it's a lot. I mean, in a given week, I'd, I'd say on a slow week, a couple hundred easy. Like I'm talking like no less than 500, uh, on a busy week. I mean, you'd be looking at easily probably over a thousand. It just, it depends time of year. Like we're a little seasonal tourist wise. So in the summer, it's obviously a little more hopping than it is right now. Um, so a lot. Uh, and then Thomas said, here's an important question. This one's going to be tough. He said, Liga number nine or T52 versus the tabernacle versus Neanderthals versus Mike Rita tricky Trakas. Well, how are you, how are you breaking that up? Are you just picking one of the, I think it's just a free for all. 
Yeah, but is it like number nine over 52? Is it Tabernacle over? No, it's just versus versus versus. Oh, you can't do that, man, because all of those are phenomenal smokes. Neanderthal. I'm going to go number nine, top of the list. That's my go-to. That's my my favorite stick, hands down. Um, It's tough because I don't consider the Tabernacle and the Neanderthal like... Well, are we talking about the, if we're talking about, I guess the way you would have to break it down since the tricky Traka is a Habano, if I'm not mistaken, you'd have right. to t- compare that to the T52. If you're talking about the number nine, you'd have to yeah. compare that to the Tabernacle, and then the Romacraft would stand out on its own because that's a San Andreas Maduro. So it's kind of apples and oranges to pears in a way. Yeah, yeah. Neanderthal, I don't. That's my my all time favorite smoke, bar none. Yeah, I gotta go number nine, man. Number nine to Toro. That's my go. Tabernacles. Tabernacles, I'm honestly not that crazy about. They don't really do do much for me. Oh, um, man, I love that tabernacle. It's so oily. It's I've, I've tried them a handful of times, man. I just, I don't. They're just was, they're a little. They're too sharp for me. It's just a little, little too. And, and see, when I say like, it, like it, when it, I say sharp, think about like cheeses. Like you have sharp yeah. cheddar compared to like mm-hmm. a mild cheddar. Right. It has that sort of like, what like bitterness? I guess I don't know what the word is, but tabernacle has that sharpness to it and i just i i've tried it multiple times and i just it's not my jam <laughs> i actually uh <laughs> as much as i love neanderthals like the the one that you gave me most the one, what was the one that was most recent in the um the sampler from f- january which one was that I think that was a intemperance it was not intemperance was oh, it? that was uh, probably Aquitaine, the Corona. Aquitaine, yeah, yeah. Uh, that caught me off guard because I was expecting it to be Neanderthal, and I wasn't like I wasn't looking at the band. I was just like mm, Roma, Roma, and uh, that was really, really good, man. Like that when you really buy, good. when you get sweet tea, and you or you thought you bought sweet tea, but it was Coke. If you yeah. go to like McDonald's or something, <laughs> and then your your brain is already prepped and ready for for Coke, but you take a sip yeah. and it's tea, and you're like, uh, your brain has that like slight stroke of confusion um another great pairing just off the top of my head that i didn't think would go really well and again everyone's different feel free to try but the monte cristo number two pre midday i believe i don't know i'm gonna butcher that but the monte cristo number two with uh oh my god the the black i can't remember a kraken that was just like what do you got on the shelf kind of night and that worked so well because the Monte Cristo number two is just butter. And then that Kraken had just that good, sweet sweetness to it. It's jet black. That was a good pairing for me. And a weird pairing. But once again, it worked. That wouldn't have been the two things that I would have put together, but mm-hmm. it works. Uh, and then Jeff said, how about pairing with wine? Wine's another hard one. Um, again, I mean, like red wines are probably easier to pair than Chardonnays and, and white wines. Uh, it can be done. It's just one of those things where you kind of have to navigate. Like if you do like a Pinot Grigio, that's probably going to be a little sweet to be pairing with something like a Charter Oak or a Perdomo Lot 23 Connecticut. Or, um, But it can be done with like red wines. The the handful that I've had um, of like dark Cabernets and stuff and Merlot, uh, not Merlots, but um, Pinot Noirs didn't go very well with the cigars that I smoked. And I've tried a couple different ones with it, trying to find something that works and it just doesn't doesn't do it um but beer i mean we can talk about beer real quick one of my favorite beers to pair with a super dark cigar uh sierra nevada narwhal 
It's a Imperial Stout that comes out once a year. That's a great beer. Um, once again, if you're going to do like an IPA, you're going to go with something that kind of has that same sort of slight bitterness and sharpness to it, like I was talking about, like that 1988. Um, and then everything else, you just got to... There's some coffee stouts that, that go really well with cigars. You know, it just... I don't know. Just got to take a leap of faith. Yeah. yeah. I've actually, I started drinking a couple sours. That I'm not like an IPA guy at all, but I had a couple buddies that are craft beer fanatics. And uh, <laughs> Brandon Valentine says, how about pairing with a snake? Um, the, uh, the sours, man. Like, I want to experiment with, with more sours. But I don't know where I don't know where to even think on the tobacco level. You know what I mean? Like, do I just start with Connecticut and just kind of see where it goes? You know, like I just don't know what's gonna clash because sour is such a a, a, a a unique taste, for lack of a better word. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. And I think IPA is kind of like tequila. That's just a hard one to pair with because it's just so like IPAs are just most of them, at least in my opinion, which I'm not an IPA guy either. Most of them are just very overpowering. And the whole point of a pairing is to have the things complement each other, not one overpower the other, you know, right. so, it's not a midget wrestling match. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I did have some things that I thought of. Yes. Last night slash today to right. cover. Uh, and the first one I actually was thinking about in the think tank, AKA my shower last night. Cause I was like, what are me and Phil going to talk about? How are we going to follow up last week and all the awesome things we caught? We, we covered awesome things. And I was, I was like, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot. Like if there was any country in the, in the world that currently does not export wildlife for the pet trade, what would it be? And I have multiple answers now. After talking to Henry a little yeah. bit this morning, he kind of, he kind of, I don't know if he, he talked to you, he talked to me. He yeah. got to you. I knew he would. Yeah. He, he's so anxious. I love it. So, so do we talk, do we tell Henry's first? I, cause I yeah. also, I feel like Henry was a little, I don't want to say enamored, but I feel like Henry was a little surprised because I guessed his answer so rapidly. And I said, Hen Dog, we talk every single day. Like, if I couldn't guess your answer, then what kind of friend would I be? So hen dogs Im immediate response is India. And yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure, and somebody's going to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's over 200 species of snakes in just India. Yeah. But you think about all the boiga species that are in India that we will never <laughs> see in the hobby. And as soon as he said India, I was like, he's right. Like yeah. there's, there's a very large chunk of the entire boiga, bo <laughs> the entire boiga genus is in India. And we'll never see him. Yeah. Well, yeah. I won't say never, but it, probably in my lifetime or our lifetime, we won't. Yeah. Yeah. So my immediate answer, just blah, word vomit is Australia. I right? knew it. See, mine but, is not. But as much as I would love Australia, Israel would be a fantastic export. Because you Every, want the vipers. I want I want the vipers. There's all the different species of Ipera. I want Walter Nisia because I need a cobra that doesn't hood. Um, <laughs> all the bugs, the arthropods, the arachnids, all, all that stuff. Breathtakingly, the frogs, the toads, endemic 
to the Near East are just phenomenal species that we just don't even know exist because nobody brings anything. You can't. It's all closed. So, yeah. Hmm. So what's what's yours? Well, so Hen Dog brought up a good point with India. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, first of all, the biggest issue is trying to remember what countries are completely closed down. Right. Because I know there's a lot in Africa. Yeah. Um, but the good thing about Africa is a lot of the species, except for regional phenotypes, a lot of the species are are very broad yeah. in terms of their range. You know, I'm pretty sure puff adders are the most widely distributed species on the planet because it literally is the entire African continent shy of the middle Sahara. But like, true. Again, there's stuff that are you know Botswana and some of the smaller countries in West Africa that are almost you know we get stuff out of Benin, but some of it comes out of Liberia. But Liberia is closed, you know. It's like Sierra Leone. There are gigantic emperor scorpions that come out of Sierra Leone that would absolutely swamp your best specimen of Heterometra swammerdami. But again, we don't know it because we never get them. And going back real quick. Bill asked, uh, are these pairings that I've tried through the course of my job or learned as accepted industry type of info? Uh, these are ones that I have personally tried. And um, that's just, it's mostly, that's just my thought process behind it. There's not a whole lot of industry type info when it comes to pairings. There's just some that people have found and are, are universally accepted as, as good pairings. Um, honestly, I don't know what they are, so... Yeah, I think that Justin's probably, I don't want to speak for him, but I feel like Justin and I share the same concept of you can watch a million different videos on cigar stuff on YouTube and the internet, and they could give you great pairing ideas, but everyone's tongue is different. Everyone's palate's different. And like what may be amazing to Justin is heinous to me. Who knows? You know? I mean, it's the the T52 versus the number nine thing. I'm a T52 guy. Exactly. Exactly. I used to be a number nine guy, and then over time, my my taste changed, my palate changed, and I just prefer my cigars be more complex and have just be a little bit more colorful and have more going on. Number nines are good, I love them, but if I have a choice, it's going to be a T fifty two nine times out of ten. Yeah. Uh, Bill also said Galapagos would be his pick. He wants Marina Granas. Uh, Dustin asked, "Is Mexico closed?" A lot of stuff I'd like to get out of there, and it is. Uh, which Mexico is another one good one. There's a lot of really cool rattlesnake species in Mexico that no yeah. one has or yeah. very few people have. Yep. My pick though, like at the top of the list is um, I guess what is Erie and Jaya. So the right side, the East coast. No, that would be Papua New Guinea. West Papua and Papua New Guinea. So, all right. So Erie and Jaya, which we don't use anymore, right? Right. would be the province of West Papua, which is owned by oh, okay. Indonesia. And that's on the west side of the island. The east side of the island is its own country, the country of Papua New Guinea. So you want Papua New Guinea to open up, which I would well, agree. Completely. I want to it's I'll tell you why though. It's it's pretty much one hundred percent out of curiosity to see what the green trees look like, what the carpets look like, any of the scrubs. Just obviously we see a ton of variation and you know the the uh, cryptic diversity in this in species of green trees there, and we really don't see or hear a lot of the the ones that are on the other side of that border. 
And so I'd be super interested to see just what things look like over there. You know, they may not look a whole lot different, but it's interesting to think about. Um, but India would probably be number two. Mexico would easily be number three. Um, South America, that's a whole nother conversation. Like Brazil, there's. Yeah, Brazil and Peru. Jeez, you know. French Guyana, like Billy Jenkins is saying. Uh, there's. That's a long list. I don't think anybody could pick just one entirely. Uh, Australia, that would be cool. Um, mostly because I want to see Imbricata. Other than Scott's through the screen on my computer here. Um, and even like the, the Australian Conjurers, that would be cool too. Did someone look? You summoned Dom. Someone said Peru. Sorry, I keep uh, I keep clearing my throat. I've got a I got a frog stuck in there. You know, mm -hmm. more frogs. inlands too. Look at that. Yeah. So I just hopped on iNaturalist just to see if you know the country of Papua New Guinea had any clicks on it. You know, because shy of a couple of major cities, it is an extremely remote country. Mm -hmm. um, I've already looked on there too. Yeah. Yeah. There's. There's one picture of a of a green tree found just slightly like right of center, if I recall, about okay. right of center, give or take, and it was like attached to a stick, and then there was a picture of it dead because some local killed it, and I guess was gonna oh, eat it. Jeez, <laughs> and it, it didn't really look like anything outstandingly different than anything else. So, how do you? All right, because I never use our naturalist on a PC or. I was using my phone. So how do I search an area of a map? Um, There's a bar at the top of the page with a little magnifying glass. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I did? I, I used the wrong search bar because there's there's two search bars, you know. Uh, I used the main one. It was like, what are you wanting to do? What are you trying to do? Okay. China would be a cool one, too. Isn't China pretty much closed off? Yeah, yeah, but a lot of there is Chinese export. A lot of them are actually exported for um, for non pet reasons, whatever mm -hmm. it may be. Um, so, just looking at this now, oh, this is not right. It's it says that there's Pituophis and Atractaspis and Thanopsis, which is not correct. Um, <laughs> So, all right, I got to figure out how to do this later. I should not be doing this while we're live. I was trying to find us green tree pictures from Papua New Guinea, but that boat sailed. Hendog said Indonesian boys get stuff from PNG all the time. It's like, well, I'm not an Indonesian boy. Yeah, I'm exactly. American, damn it. Yeah. We're white. They don't like us. See, I'll pull it up on iNaturalist because I'm not a boomer. I got this. Thanks. Young I'm looking up. I'm looking up bear rat snakes in Papua New Guinea because that's the default. Yeah, that's not good. Which, by the way, I'm glad we actually got on this topic because once we once we show some PNG animals, uh, I want to ask you about making your Baird's database because I have some 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 cogs turning in my mind. Aurelia, here it is. Yes. Um. Let's see. I think this is the one I was talking about. Dun, 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 dun. 
Listen to some Journey tonight. Whoa. Okay. I, still, I still can't believe. I still can't believe that you listen to music while we record our live shows. I do. It's just I have to like be in it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm trying to look on Unnaturalist, and I'm already you know. I got on. it right here, bro. Look at you, bro. So here's the one I was talking about. It's not. That's- that's the only one that's yeah, well, there's a second one now. So I think I got added recently. This one's from July of last year or submitted. It was actually from 2004, but it's not really, see, I was assuming it was right around here where this little hand is, Thought it was right here. It's actually further East. Okay. Um, I mean, it's a pretty big chondro though. I mean, that's a, that's not yeah. a small one. And this guy's super happy with his slingshot in hand. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> wow look at that that sucks but it's interesting because this one is it's like a sort of what we would classify as like a maruki uh which is has that white band the, you know the white dots very similar to the cape york stuff which kind of makes sense because that's not far off from where the land bridge would have been to cape york that's the distance we're talking about right there uh and then let me see what the other one was they have that labeled as a southern green tree, which I don't think would be right. And this one isn't new. This is one I saw too. And this one was even farther east. Uh, you can see it right here. So there's sort of the like off this little, I guess it would be the bird's tail since the bird's head is the other adjacent corner. But also very Maruki-esque. High yellows with the line. And uh, yeah, so actually, you know what I didn't look up though while we were doing this? Is look up carpet pythons. It's good. Hmm. Harrisoni. Yes. This thing really does struggle. Wow, there's no popcorn carpets on iNaturalist. What's up with that? Yeah, there, yeah, there is. I don't think it's. Uh, I think it, it's. Um, it doesn't. They're not doing Harrisoni. <clears throat> I mean, it comes up. Oh, does it? Yeah. Really? Let me just look up carpet python. Yeah. Then we'll just look at the dots on the map. Jeff said, I hate seeing dead snakes on iNaturalist. Uh, I'd like to see what stuff is coming out of the Pashtun region of Pakistan and Afghanistan. You should look up false palm viper. That's why I brought up French Guyana. Those are very cool. Um, I hate seeing dead snakes anywhere. Would you post pics of a puppy you killed because it was in your yard? No. Yeah, but see, but see, you can't. You it's can't different over there. He's he's eating it. It's a delicacy. Mm-hmm. He's excited about it. It's very cultural. large cultural gap. Yeah, yeah. No different than you know we would be with you know the prized deer that we just harvested. You know, Billy said my brain couldn't handle listening to music and doing a podcast. Yeah, it's not loud. Like I have it turned down a lot. It's just in the background. It's just background noise. <clears throat> Ooh, so, see, look, we got a dot. 
Oh, where's that? It's right here. I'm trying to zoom in. iNaturalist makes my computer struggle. Oh. There we go. Port Moresby. And it's funny that they look like the Marukis, and the Maruki is literally like all the way across this this little Polar opposite. bay area, I guess is what you'd call it. And yes, Thomas, some of the Central Asian countries do export. Turkmenistan uh, exports a lot of really cool stuff. I'm pretty sure most of the Russian tortoises that are imported all come out of, uh, I think, Turkmenistan. So... Wow, that's like Nova Guinea as hell. That is Nova Guinea as hell. Mm. Look at that. From Snakes Are Cool. Looking good, Billy Ray. And let's see what the other one looks like. Don't do this to me. Uh, Jeff says, not much for Apodora. Is that the one I just looked at? I think it is. Yeah. See, this says it's a Darwin carpet. We know that. Yeah. It's not not likely. That one looks a little more traditional. Yeah. It also looks very unhappy. And that's on the PNG side. Yeah. That's Port Moresby. Moresby. Yeah. More that's there. where. Uh... Port Moresby. That's where uh, Dr. David Williams and his yeah. and Bavia are at. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. What's up, Billy Hunt? Chiming in for the Nova Guineas in the wild. Let's see about scrubs. I see some, some dots on that side, too. Billy Hunt's going to have to rewind to uh, see the, the Nova Guinea. Yeah, because this thing's such a nightmare. Well, I opened up mine, and it works fine. So if you, I actually pulled up another species. If you Probably because I have music playing and this going on. Probably. Here, just switch to mine, and I'll pull up the scrubs. Let me see. I got one pulled up here. Ooh, look at that. That one's pretty. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Oh. That front wow. half is almost like a like a Timor. And dude, look how thin that palm is. And it's just going straight down that thing. Just hanging on. All muscle, dude. It's all muscle. Look at that impressive animal. Oh, what awesome. All right, we'll switch to yours. So I have an affinity for death adders, right? And one of my favorites is Rugosis, which is the rough. It's the keeled one that comes out of New Guinea. So I went on uh, the PNG side just now, and I, t I typed in country Papua New Guinea, so it didn't give me the Indo stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's no Rugosis, but I found a Lavis that I guess the guy got lucky. Here, show the picture. Whoever took this photo is champion because that is clearly a male courting a female. Like, oh, yeah. How lucky is that picture? You know? And it just it also goes to show so much color variation in that one species alone. Because, like, I've had red ones. I've had blue ones. I've had, you know, like, the blue-gray, like, the blau-grau. Yeah. That female's kind of ugly. Yeah, that female's, like, that 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 
you know, light olive. Looks like giraffe. a water snake. Yeah. Um, so what did, did you type in Somalia or what did you type in? For uh, yeah, it? I looked up Somalia and genus and there was two observations on the right side of that chunk of land. There you go. Well, uh, you can do it, Phil. Yeah, I know. I know. Hold on. How'd you get yours to have all the water and green stuff? Mine was just because uh, I'm, I'm awesome. I think that top one was the first one I did. That one I there. Think. That was yeah. I think that's the one I just did. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so where's this one? Wow, that's really interesting. That doesn't even look like. Zoom out on the map. It looks yeah. like Elias. This one. Anything else? Is that the other one? It is. That's another. Yeah, that's the other one. Is Very. One yeah. Can you guys see that? Mm-hmm. Wow, it's very. Uh, let's just. just yeah. Wow. Very, very blank looking too. You know. Interesting. So now, just for uh, shits and giggles, should I do the same thing and try typing in? Um, uh, just scrub Python, see what comes up. <clears throat> I mean, go ahead. It's going to be a lot of Australian stuff. Not if I type in PNG. Unless you look up tannin bars. We could do that. Um, Dude, let's... I had a hell of a time cleaning his cage yesterday, man. It's because you don't love him he's, enough. He's a hard one to wrangle. He either takes off or he firmly anchors himself. Onto whatever is closest. Oh wow! Look at that. That's all the way on New Britain. Wow. Mm. Can't tell if that animal is alive. I say, I'm, it's not looking, not looking not, good. Not looking too hot, right? Um, and then there's this one. Ooh, oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that looks a lot like those sort of those highland types. Yeah. Much darker. The oxybil, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Which is one of my favorite localities when it comes to the, the scrubs there. Man, they're just they're so cool looking. I was looking up Sudakis. No results. Isn't that crazy? And that is very, very crazy. So now let's just do. Let me do this. Because I can search that area. It's what's being shown on the map. No results. Look up the one Billy is talking about. Look up his, uh, with King Rats. Hold on. Yeah, it's not even in. It's not in Papua at all. Wow, that's sad. It just goes to show you, man. Humans and cane toads. 
humans well, and no not even i mean look we did we looked up green trees there was two observations and we looked up scrubs and there was two observations like clearly yeah, yeah that's not true. exactly a hopping destination yeah yeah you're right good point not a lot of wi-fi in uh, east papua so all right and what are we looking for now Elafe Coronada Yana Gwenianiensis. And Brandon said people misname a lot of animals on there. You have to be very broad. And uh Elafe Coronada from Papua? That yeah, the the no the the one with the Y that you were just that just popped up. And Henry said, no Sudeikis Papuanas have been found in the wild for a few years. Not gone, but rare. Because if anybody's going to know that, it's going to be Hendog. Yeah, I know. I knew, and that's kind of why. I knew Henry was watching. That's kind of why I wanted to do it. He's got um, a pretty good pulse on, on everything going on over that way. No results. All right, let's get rid of Papua. Yeah, well, that's right there. Where? On the right side of your screen, bro. Yeah, oh, oh, you're saying just click this. I don't know what Billy is, is looking at in particular. They're in oh, Japan. this is, yeah, that is not in Papua New Guinea. Taiwan. That's Taiwan. Yeah, I guess Brandon makes a good point. I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of listings on there that haven't been identified yet by people because there's just there's probably so many that people just haven't gotten around to actually doing it. So that makes me I'm gonna look up Baird's. What is that? Let's back that up. Oh, good God! Yeah. What did I just look at. All right, we're stop that one. This graphic. Yes, it was. Oh, that was a rabbit hole, wasn't it? Snake, Texas. No, Billy, it's quite all right. We weren't trying to stay in PG. We, I just got confused because I thought that the Carnot did come from that, and that's what you were trying to do. I didn't realize it was Taiwanese or Formosan. Excuse me. <clears throat> what so, did you want to talk about with the whole database thingy? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stolen photos. So, I was going to start a. Basically, I wanted to get as much locality, phenotypic data on wrinkles that I could, and I've noticed that I'm in a couple of groups on on Facebook that are you know I got a snake in my backyard. Please ID it. Um, and there's a there's been a ton of wrinkles lately, and they're all different colors. You know, I posted that one. Uh, from Gotang, um, that really light that color. Video? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just like that video honestly sparked my thing. I was like, well, shit, man. I know Justin was doing the iNaturalist thing and like cataloging all the Bairds and where where they were found, you know, the local city, you know, mm -hmm. time of year, all that stuff. And I kind of want to do the same thing with the Rinkals, but I don't know how to start. And like shy of just making an Excel spreadsheet, I, I kind of wanted to go further into it i didn't know if there was like a databasing program no. I, here i'll yeah. show you let me bring it up yeah because i know there is like collections database apps and stuff i was trying to avoid that i don't know i'm trying to find i don't really think there is something specifically that in my mind what i want to accomplish 
I think it's going to be a lot of note-taking on my part, basically saying, you know, picture number one, two, three, four, and then the descriptions in spreadsheet. You know, I have a feeling it's going to be something like that. And I, maybe I'll just do like a hyperlink to the actual photos and just save them all. So. No, it's super easy. So what I did is you can create a Google Drive for free and it gives you 15 gigabytes of storage up front. Right. Um, and so in my main drive, I created a folder called Baird Eye Locales. Right. Um, and then I have it broken down by Mexico and Texas and then unknown, lo unknown localities. And so then I go on iNaturalist. I look up all the Baird's listings and wherever it says they were found, if they were listed, I put that county. Okay. So like Edwards is a big one. And this is 100% for personal use. I'm not posting this anywhere or anything like that. Like I've shared the link with people. And I'm doing this just because I want to be able to look at the different localities and see the, the difference without having to right. flip back and forth through iNaturalist. And um, so then like if they if they listed a certain mile marker or something like that, uh, like this is FM uh, 335 north of Vance, Nueces Canyon. Um Barksdale, so like any of the little counties sort of outside of that that main area. Um, Texas 118 near Davis Mountain State Park. Uh, this one's really interesting. So I just saved them from my naturalist and loaded them in this folder. And this is basically literally so I could just go through, look at the different Bairds. Um, I'll show you another one. So if I go back to Texas, and I mean, it's not hard to do. And these pictures aren't like super high res, so they're not going to take up a ton of. Right, right ton of space um valverde which is like loma alta's wow look at that red face yeah look at that click that guy so this one's between comstock and langtree so sort wow. of that same general area look at those stripes man yeah oh awesome and so, I'd, like I said, just as a, as a way to do a comparison, at some point I'd like to sort of somehow compile these into like a little quiz thing I can take so I can sort of get used to seeing the different localities and being able to, to see uh, any traits or something that sort of stick out for a, a, a particular particular yeah. group. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a trend with these where sort of the... Um, one side of the distribution has a little more silver. Uh, the other side has a little more orange. Um, so like one of the male, the male bears I got at the Atlanta show has very coppery eyes like that. And I do notice a, a little difference in the eye color in some of them. Um, so then if we go to like unknown localities, just where they've, they've obscured that, that information which is why I'm so bummed that I have no idea where this one came from because this is like wow. the coolest bears ever. Wow. Straight silver. It looks like now, do you think that that might be a result of that sand? Like, like not, like not it, the, the sand getting on the animal's body and getting in between the scales and just making it. Look no, more I mean that thing, that thing looks pretty clean to me. Yeah. See if I can zoom in more. I mean, that's, It's just odd. Like, there's no saddles. There's not even stripes. It's just yeah. gray. Well, and there's like some of the orange in the tail. You can see this where the stripes almost start, but the stripes mm -hmm. themselves are silver. Very cool. 
And then obviously so, yeah. there's, there's not a ton of listings for Mexico, but even then I have that breaking uh, broken down into sort of the areas. Um, so he, like the Mexican birds, I talked about it. They have that silver head with the, the distinctly differently colored body. Uh, this one's kind of in the middle of changing, but you can see obviously the head is different than the rest of it. Yeah. Um, here's another good example. So, just something cool you can do if you're if you got a species with a ton of variation. Like I thought about even doing it with corn snakes, but that's that's a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just it's it's cool to to be able to look at it and be able to tell what's what. And I think that's that's kind of the only way you really get good at you know, like condor localities and stuff too, you know, so you just, you look at a lot of them. Yeah. And even if it's on like some sort of subconscious level, like I even screenshotted the, the map here. Um, and it's not like I have any plans to go to this place and try and find the, any of this. It's just data collection for the sake of data collection, I guess. It's because you like it. You know, that's the same thing with me. You know what I mean? You know, the, the snakes are found 8,500 miles from my home. It's not like mm -hmm. I'm going to go on a weekend trip and go looking. It's just sheer curiosity, you know, fascination of a species. And if I was smart, I'd actually do another folder with Subox, which I need to do. I just thought of that. You really should. You know, and, and it makes us better keepers, too. You know, you're seeing all the different uh, habitat. And, you know, I did I look at weather from like we always joke about oh the show starts off with the weather report and, like oh you're getting older you like the weather you know my dad watches the weather channel all day because he's 70 like we make those jokes but weather is such a big uh data thing for herpers you know what i mean aside from going herping in your local area like i have i have cities in, in africa and asia and australia because that's the species that i keep you know and i like to know what's going on at that exact moment and Steven asked, are we getting any carpet fest this year? Um, Southeast, not that I know of, unless someone else is putting one together. I don't know if any of the other ones are happening. I haven't heard any word on it yet. Then Brandon asked, are the Mexican locales in the hobby as, uh, as much as the U.S. locale? I don't, in terms of popularity versus price, uh, the Mexicans are typically a little more expensive, but that's because there's not as many of them as the Texas localities. So Jeff said Northwest, maybe as far as Carpet Fest go. So. But the issue with the Mexican stuff, as far as Baird's go is like the original founding group was, was brought in by the San Antonio zoo. I believe um, there was one, one guy in particular that brought in a couple and I'm pretty sure any in the U.S. all originate back to that that original group since Mexico exportation is not happening. Um, there's nothing to say that someone brought in illegally and no one knew about them. Who knows? I don't know. It's not impossible. Um, so, oh, he said uh, population-wise. Yeah, no, they're not as popular. Uh, I mean, I have an adult pair that were sold to me as Mexicans. They, they fit the bill phenotypically. And then I have another pair that I got at Daytona last year that are from Ron Allen that are Mexicans. So that's something I'm definitely planning on on working with because, I mean, the Mexicans are my favorite out of all of them, honestly. You know, between those and the Loma Altas, it's just 
they're awesome looking snakes. I uh, just real quick, I forgot I wanted to share this. I have to go back and I have to dig through Facebook and find out where the locality was on this. But if this doesn't say Exanthic, I don't know what does. And it's so difficult. Ooh. Right? Dude, that thing's a freaking beast. Beast as a diesel animal. Big. And like, and, and like you look at it, right? And to me, shy of like this little markings here, that would that is pretty Exanthic to me. But then you, when you zoom in on the face, you can't really tell if that's like dirt or blood or something. Yeah. But like that coloration would not like red on the face like that would be very uncommon. But dude, how awesome is that snake? Well, I mean, I would think that you saw the ones that P and Cody had. They had right. one in the main room that was very black and gray. I wonder if that one had. Yeah, it may, it may just be their locality. Who knows? So we we get off track again. What was we were we were talking about exporting, right? Yes. So general consensus, most definitely India, most definitely Israel, most definitely Australia, and possibly some obscure African countries, i.e., Angola. Mm-hmm. Angola would be stupendous. Ethiopia. Ethiopia would be stupendous. Uh Realistically, if you could ever figure out how, if there is, if there even is an airport, but like, you know, Western Sahara, Mauritania, that would be pretty awesome. Tons of desert species out there that no one's ever seen. Let me see. I'm trying to pull up. So, Nipper, our buddy across the pond, tagged me in a couple posts that talked about Heliderma bites. So I was pretty interested to talk about those. Okay, cool. I know we've talked about them briefly in the past. Um, right. That they do happen. They're usually not life threatening, but they are super painful. Yeah. yeah. And I'm trying to now find these posts, so bear with me. Uh, he tagged me in like three of them. You find that? I'll be right back. Okay. Here we go. It's case reports. Uh, I have one from a Gila, and then there's some from some beaded lizards. And we'll wait for Phil to return. I actually just uh, put my male bears back in with my female. I separated them to feed them, and I put them back. None of my adults have gone into shed cycles yet, so it might be all for nothing at the moment. But All the younger bears, of course, are all shedding at the same time, but none of the adults that are ready to go are. So go figure. Same with the corns. The second clutch of Boygasiania should be hatching... On the 25th of March, so we're about, we're inside the or almost inside the the last 30 days or so, and then I'll likely end up pairing them again. I'm thinking sometime in June. Those females, or at least my females, seem to bounce back really quick from from laying and double clutching. So 
I have a the sneaking suspicion that in the wild those things probably reproduce like crazy. Current babies are good. Uh, I have one that is yet to refuse a meal since day one, which has been pretty nice because I just drop a pinky in there, whether it's frozen thawed or live, and it disappears. Um, the other two, I've had one that kind of he'll take frozen thawed or it'll take frozen thawed sometimes, kind of like 50-50 if I offer it. Sometimes it takes it, sometimes it doesn't. And then I have one that just flat out just strikes and strikes and strikes and strikes and strikes, but doesn't actually take it. So they'll come around. It's just going to take time. So I have traversers like that. Yeah. So I found one of these is a heloderma. Um, not a heloderma, a helobite. It is a heloderma. It's just not a, it's a hela. Um, so there's this guy that posts in the Venom interviews, and then there's he has another group entirely that talks about it's a lot of case reports and stuff. Uh, the guy's name is um, Masood Salimi. Salimian? Salimian? Uh, so this is from a Gila monster. Abstract. A variety of exotic reptiles are kept as quote-unquote pets, and the ownership of these animals is arising in Hong Kong. Two lizard species are known to be venomous, the Gila monster and the Mexican beaded lizard. Both of them are native to North America, but are traded in the pet markets. Bites from these lizards are capable of causing severe envenomation in humans. A 41-year-old man presented to the emergency department after getting... After bitten by his exotic pet, his right hand was bitten by a Gila, resulting in local swelling and intense pain. The local envenomation lasted for about 12 hours and then gradually improved. Um, Good for him. Bites by Gila monsters could result in local and systematic envenomation. Local envenomation includes intense pain of the injured site, edema, and paresthesia. Systemic envenomation included hypotension and airway edema uh, occurring in severe envenomations. With the increasing popularity of keeping exotic pets in Hong Kong, envenomation by exotic venomous animals may be encountered by the emergency physicians. Knowledge about the potential envenomation effects of these exotic animals is essential for proper management of the patients. Yeah. I feel like that kind of goes without saying, but I'm not a doctor. Here's one from a Mexican beaded lizard. 30 photos. Those, uh, on the first one, there, there was one of the hand, but it really wasn't anything special. This one doesn't really have any. This one just has a picture of a beaded. Um, but there was one that does have, I think it's the next one that has a, a good bit of pictures with it. Okay. Um, so this one is a single report of an envenomation by a Mexican beta lizard. Uh, further anaphylaxis secondary to lizard envenomation has only been reported with the Gila monsters. We report an envenomation that resulted in both systemic toxicity and anaphylaxis. A 40-year-old male was bitten on his hand by a captive Mexican beta lizard. The patient experienced severe local pain, dizziness, vomiting, and diaphoresis. Uh, upon arrival to the hospital, he was lethargic, vomiting, and in severe pain with marked swelling on his hand, lips, and tongue. His blood pressure was 110 over 63 with a pulse of 60 beats per minute. The patient's oxygen saturation decreased to 55% and he required oxygen, although cyanosis was not observed. Uh, he was treated with normal saline, diphenhydramine, um, methylprednisolone, famotidine, uh, morphine. The morphine the better? On Danster... On Dancitron and Hydromorphone, 
The patient was admitted to intensive care where he continued to complain of severe pain requiring morphine. Local x-ray revealed only soft tissue swelling. Remarkable initial laboratory values included a white blood cell count of 18.5. I don't know what that measurement is with 80% SEGS. Also don't know what that means. Over the next eight hours, the patient's symptoms gradually improved. He had persistent local swelling at the bite site along with uh, erythematous streaking up the forearm. He had an uneventful hospital course until his eventual discharge the following day. Significant envenomations by members of the Helodermatidae family are rare. Systemic toxicity usually resolves within one or two days of supportive care. Prior envenomations may predispose patients to anaphylactic reactions. Yeah, twelve hours is pretty quick, though. I mean, I got—I know one guy that got hit and uh, by an adult, and he was a, a short guy, shorter than me, and uh, he got hit by an adult Gila in the in the palm. It was a mistake. The Gila was going for the rat, and his hand was in the wrong spot. Um, and his lasted about about seventy-two hours, maybe. Mm. And I know another guy, and we believe that this was some kind of—I don't want to say anaphylaxis, but some kind of allergic reaction he was bitten in the hand this is a big guy probably your size justin and he got bit by a baby in the thumb and his pain lasted like five days so, so it was something to do with his nervous system something to do with his his immune system did not agree with that venom of a little baby there's an interesting case report of a fatal portuguese man of war envenomation which from what i understand those aren't typically fatal but I mean, a big enough man of war. That all. Yeah. 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 That's the Gila bite we already read. Here we go. There's another. This is a Guatemalan beaded lizard. So this is the Heloderma horridum Charles Bogardi. Bogardi. Um, this is an endemic lizard that inhabits southeastern Guatemala. Published reports of bites by beaded lizards are scarce. This is the first case reported. This is the first case report of a bite from uh, the Charles. Bogarty subspecies. A 24-year-old 24-year-old man was bitten on the left hand by a juvenile uh, animal. The lizard remained attached for approximately 15 seconds. The patient experienced severe local pain, dizziness, diaphoresis, vomiting, severe paresthesia in his left hand and arm, and hypotension. Yep. Um, That's it. He was treated with intravenous ketorolac chlor... I don't, I don't All, even All this stuff and normal saline. Hematology tests revealed uh, leukocytosis. Uh, symptoms improved and the patient was discharged from the hospital 24 hours after admission. The case reported here shows that bites by heloderma produced severe clinical effects shortly after the bite. Management consists of waiting for the lizard to relax its bite pressure and using pliers to open the lizard's mouth and pull out the bitten extremity. Wow. A careful manual search for teeth remnants and supportive care. In our case, severe pain unresponsive to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory analgesics was a major problem. Paresthesias resolve quickly, but pain may persist for up to 12 hours after the bite. A full recovery is expected. Uh, so let me bring up the pictures. And I'm sorry for butchering all the medical jargon. I'm kind of amazed that I was able to read that as fluidly as I was. Okay. So it doesn't look like much. Yeah, that's about what you expect. 
It don't look fun. I know that. Oh. You could totally tell that that guy had his hand over above the lizard, and he was probably trying to take a picture or probably just playing around, doing this, and it just went and got him. Hmm. So let's see. There's one. So they he talks about some of these other papers or uh, reports. Um, says we present a we present a synthesis of clinical and biomedical effects of envenomation by heloderma based on 22 well identified cases described in medical literature, three life threatening syndromes. Um, Maybe involved angioedema, which can lead to respiratory tract obstruction, significant fluid losses due to diarrhea, vomiting, and sweating associated with hypokalemia, and sometimes metabolic acidosis. It says hemodermer bites are quite rare and generally mild, which I do wonder if if that with that last one, if that thing hang on, that thing hung on. For 15 seconds. I mean, that's it's a long time. Heloderma strike me as one of those types where the longer you're letting them hold on, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, the thing is, it doesn't matter if you got bit for one second or 15 seconds. It's a guaranteed ventilation. Like, there yeah. is no, there is no dry bites with the heloderma. And it could have been. Brandon said, it "Looks like it was laying on the forearm, possibly." Which, if you think about it, yeah. Is possible. Uh, and then actually, you know, while we're talking about Heloderma, the Reptile Zoo posted this really crazy video of them extracting venom from either a beaded or a Gila recently. And you saw the teeth on that sucker, man. Like, you don't really see them because there's almost like the same sheath sort of mechanism thing going on with them. Right, right. But when those teeth pop out, dude, it's like, holy smokes. Let me find it. Uh, it was on Kristen's page. Not something I am going to go out of my way to experience. Yeah, especially with your lizards. They're going to be big. Unlike some people on YouTube named Peyote Schmiederson. <laughs> Yeah, I just I think that I think that it it is literally in the Guinness Book of World Records as the slowest lizard in the world until it needs to be fast. And I think that there are so many techniques to handling heliderms without just grabbing them from behind the head. Oh, look at that. Yeah, that's a beaded So give it a second and you'll see them suckers. Something else people might not realize is the venom glands on heloderms are actually right here in the bottom jaw. That's why they're so so fat. So now what is it a sponge that they have them biting onto? It's some sort of rubber contraption. Look at that. Look at them things, man. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah.
Look at those dead eyes. That's the one thing about beaded and healers that kind of creeps me out a little bit. Is just those little. They're almost like human eyes, but oh, tiny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of give me the willies. Oh, those teeth are impressive. They're like big venomous tegus. I don't Except know. I think way cooler. Just the scalation. Oh yeah, yeah. Structure and way cooler. It looks almost like some kind of like rubber nipple. Yeah, so like a finger cover or yeah. something. Yeah, like a rubber finger cover, and I'm sure the venom just goes into the cover and it just it. chomping down. Yeah. No, I don't want to get bit by that. Aggro. That's that's totally like a, the lights are on but no one's home. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. They just look goofy, man. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> Jeez. Here we go. Brad said he's done a few amateur experiments with leather gloves. The longer they hold on, the more venom, which makes sense because yeah, every time they bite down, there's that pressure that's sort of, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't know. And you're going to get some soon. I got to figure out. So I talked to Reed and we, we want to build a cage, but I like a, he's a minimum of like an hour and 15 minutes from me. And then it's, I don't know how to build these things. I'm not that savvy. So it's like, I need like, can you buy the materials and then I'll just pay you back and then we'll build it together. Like I'll come up there one weekend and do, I just, there's a logistics, hurdle yeah yeah so and then i thought about if i haven't been here i can't really smoke in here unless i get some way to like close off the the ventilation and then find some way to get like a smoke eater you can smoke in there dude it's fine you do it you don't weird man i'm gonna be that guy that everyone's like oh he smokes when there's animals in the same room no you just get one of those you get one of those bladeless fans you know from sharper image or whatever you put the bladeless fan behind you so that you know, we, the podcast people, don't hear the, you know, eh, from the fan. And you're fine, dude. But how freaking dope would it be to have, like, a big... I mean, me and me and Reed talked about making a cage the size of this tapestry thing, which is pretty big. That'd be awesome. Having that as the background, you see these just giant, giant beaded's just chilling. It would be awesome. It really would. And I found someone actually, one of my buddies. He sells uh, driftwood because I need a piece of a big piece of driftwood for the female Jansenite cage. Just to, they like to climb, so I want to give her climbing stuff. And uh, he's got some huge pieces. So when that happens, I'm definitely gonna gonna get some of those and find some that I can sort of cross to be able to make it like a platform almost and have like a shelf built in there. I don't know what wood to use, like what's going to work best. Obviously, particle board I really don't want to use just because it's so yeah. heavy. The moment any moisture gets in there and seeps past that seal, it just yeah sponges. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, crap, man. See if you can get PVC. You know? By the sheet. Because I was envisioning like a just a bigger wood frame. Uh and not necessarily like uh, uh, plywood or anything like that, because I know you can buy birch now by the sheet and stuff like that. And I don't know. I need to talk to Reed about it more. His work schedule is probably just as chaotic as mine is. So yeah, yeah. We're still we're gonna work it out, but I'm also not in any hurry. So 
gotcha. But what's what's the best and worst Crotalus, in your opinion? What have you kept as far as rattlesnakes go? All right, Mike. What have I personally kept? Um, what have I, what have I personally kept in my own collection, as well as extensive care of someone else's collection, whether it be working for the wholesaler or you know yes. mentor or uh, apprenticing under someone. So, the first snakes that come to mind in terms of problematic is black-tailed rattlesnakes. Uh, I personally feel that the majority of them in the pet trade <clears throat> are wild caught. Uh, they're usually super duper stressed uh, and it doesn't matter how much time you give them to de-stress. They're just always like, oh my God, a human, get away from me, to the point where they don't even rattle. They're just like timid, coward in the corner thing. And uh, I've had very, very bad success with them. Uh, to the point where I don't even think about keeping them. Like I've had friends that did great, you know, and they're like, oh man, the Melosis did so good and blah, blah, blah. And oh man, I fed the Melosis again. And oh, it's, it's, it's such a great one, but they just did really, really bad for me. Just a, just not a good species for Phil. Um, but I'm sorry, did, did you want to know what my, what species I think is the worst to keep or what I've, what species I've actually kept? both oh geez all right so i've kept again going back to my collection and other people's um i mean in terms of like working with them and management like because i remember i was watching so last night i was at my parents house and the girls were watching crikey it's the irwins and they were in arizona and they were giving little steve jr uh Wes, the the best friend guy, yeah, was teaching him how to tail rattlesnakes in the desert. Because well, that's a that's, horrible idea. That's a scale. That's a skill that he needs to learn. And of course, they found a bunch of atrox. Yeah, that's a like, that's a horrible idea. Like why? Um, uh, and so that made me think. Like, what's like? I remember my atrox. I wasn't going to tail her. No. no. So I have a, I have a personal rule that I teach all of my you know new people and stuff is that. A, you don't tail rattlesnakes. I don't care what people say. I don't care what people do. You don't tail rattlesnakes. And if you have to tail a rattlesnake for whatever reason, you don't have two hooks, it won't ride one hook by itself, or you're just not comfortable, you know, however you're moving it, um, I will not tail a rattlesnake that is under three and a half, four foot long. I just won't do it. I'll get two hooks. I'll get, you know, M1 tongs. I'll, I'll try and single hook it. You know, I'll use uh, some kind of container to flop them in there if I have to and drag the container. But I do not tail rattlesnakes that short um, because their ability to swing around and go right back to the tip of their tail is so grand. They just do it in the blink of an eye. And don't get me wrong. I I'm going to be hypocritical and tell you that I've done it hundreds, if not, you know, countless times. But... I feel like there's almost a window of opportunity in which the animal is like, okay, what's going on? What's going on? And then you have that few seconds to do what you have to do. But then at the same time, you don't necessarily want to give them those couple seconds. Mm -hmm. So like for me personally, I don't tell rattlesnakes unless I absolutely have to. And it is large enough. Uh, you know, you've got a big six pushing on seven foot Eastern Diamondback. Yeah, I've tailed them. Absolutely. But I've also had Eastern Diamondbacks where you could not tail it. Because it mm -hmm. would get you. Its strike range 
was as long as its body and your your 40 inch hook is not long enough to to be that close you know you just you just can't in my personal opinion you know and atrox the worst because the minute you touch that raccoon tail they suck it back in or they'll mm-hmm. jerk back around and strike it yeah that um i'm not about tailing rattlesnakes i've done it uh i mean i i actually i won't lie i i tell my big cane break it's four foot you know but i find that he doesn't ride double hooks well i'm constantly having to treadmill with him you know putting one hook and readjusting putting one hook and readjusting but i know that if i just lift up his rear third placing in my palm and just use my palm almost as a hook on that on that last you know black tail part that last bit of third then he'll ride a hook pretty well but it's also for three seconds four mm-hmm. seconds you know just literally to get him out of the enclosure into the can so that i can do maintenance i'm not standing there taking pictures i'm not you know i'm not keeping the first third on the ground and lifting the tail in the air like it's just not happening it's literally three to three seconds, two and a half seconds to remove the animal from the enclosure to do maintenance. You know, and a lot of times with him, once he's in the trash can, he's too wound up for me to get another tail because now I don't have the space to be able to bring the animal to me. I have to go into the trash can. And that's a whole other concept. So I now have to bring that last third to me. And then hope that he's going to let me bring that third. He's not just going to keep sucking his tail yeah. back. So what I've actually done is I've, I've gently tipped the garbage can over and let him slither out on his own and then either use the hook like a shepherd's crook and steer him or direct him back into his own closure, which is on the bottom, conveniently in the bottom. Or I'll then tail him from the floor or double hook him from the floor and place him in his enclosure. So, Because I know Aatrox are popular. Aatrox yeah. are common. Um, I think we've, we've mentioned it briefly in the past, you know, Aatrox is, as sort of a gateway into venomous and keeping them, whether that was a good species or not. I want to say you weren't down with Aatrox being not down with Aatrox being a starter venomous, no way in hell. It's way, it's way too volatile of an animal. You know, they're not bad. They're great snakes. They eat great. They poop great. They breed easy. Like they're just, they're good, hearty snakes, but they're, they're multiple split personalities and extreme defensiveness makes them unwieldy to a novice keeper. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you got to start somewhere, but yeah. I just, I, I thought, I mean, I can see that being the case, like where you're coming from with that. I just, my opinion on them with, you know, the year, two years I was keeping mine was like, this thing's going to learn to keep you on your toes. Like you're definitely not, not paying attention to what you're doing with one of those when it's out of the, you know, I was right. keeping the Neodisha at the time, like doors open, like wake up, you know, cause yeah. she was spazzy, you know, she wanted to yeah. go somewhere. She was going there just super like you were saying super sensitive you touch any part and it's like twitching and pulling back and jerking and you know it just yeah so i think it you know unlike maybe like copperheads and stuff that are more likely to kind of just try and take off and not ride a hook and you know the natrox was kind of like this is yeah. i don't know yeah. the words like it's it's, it's most, I think you experience a little more you, you have more stressors Oh, of course. And to be honest, a lot of people get um, 
I don't want to say they get complacent because it's an Aatrox, but in terms of actually using hook manipulation to remove the an remove the animal from its enclosure, people get overconfident with Aatrox because Aatrox ride a hook very well in most frequencies. They'll ride a single hook. So you have this snake that's coiled up, it's rattling its tail, it's cocked back, it's giving you um, a low head posture, it's completely you know, inverted its tongue and it's holding its tongue straight out like a gonyosoma. It is in extreme defense mode. And because it's balled up and it's, its body is so tightly wound, you use your single hook and you scoop it up and it just sits there on the hook. And everyone's like, okay, cool, it rides a hook well. Well, no, it doesn't. It's so muscle tense that it happens to ride that hook. And you get in a habit of picking it up and putting it down and picking it up and putting it down. And then one day, it's going to know what's going to happen. And it's not going to be this tight, tense, wound coil. It's going to launch off that hook right at you with its heat-sensing, you know, heat-seeking rocket missile face. And you're going to be caught off guard and you're going to go, whoa, what just happened? I can't believe he did that. He never does that. Well, no, he's always wanted to. She's always wanted to. It's just had the right opportunity. So again, not an aggressive animal by any means. Rattlesnakes are not aggressive. They are defensive, just like any other snake. But the fact that they're so tightly wound, pun intended, um, it's misleading that they ride a hook well. You know, I've had Aatrox that literally will not ride a single hook whatsoever. And I have to use some kind of, you know, I have to flop them into a tub or I have to use some kind of pilstrums or M1 tongs or something to to gently move them. What I've actually done before uh, is an interesting trick is if you're very comfortable using two hooks properly, and I do mean that properly because there is a an actual legitimate technique to double hooking. What I've done is I've used this set of pilstrums, but not in the sense of grabbing the animal. I've used the pilstrums to bring the animal to me, to bring the back third to me. The animal's going to, in theory, spin around and face me because now I've grabbed its tail, right, right. With, the, with the pilstrums. Now it's facing me. Now I can use, because I'm right-handed, I can use my right hook, and I can come in from the, the right side, and I can scoop the tip of the hook towards the first coil of the animal. So now the tip of the hook is on the inside right of the animal, and the shaft of the hook is on my right or the animal's left, mm -hmm. right? And now I'm going to lift that first third. And now I've presented myself a gap between the animal and the bottom of the enclosure, the bottom of the floor. And now I can slide the bottom jaw, the bottom mandible of the pilstrums into that gap and then slide to my left, which would be the snake's right. And now I've essentially brought in a double hook and I can then lift the animal up with the two hooks. But if the animal starts to pull its tail closer, it starts to advance towards me, I can close down the pilstrums and kind of slow it down a little bit. Yeah. And that's going to give me that extra second or two to of slowing it down to lift the animal up, place it in the containment the uh, containment vessel, containment box, whatever, trash can, whatever. And essentially I was double hooking it, but I didn't give it the option to slide off because using the pilstrums to slow it down, I'm just mm -hmm. applying just enough pressure to cause drag where it's going to be like what the hell is this, you know? Yeah. But I know if I grab that animal, it's going to go into full defense mode. And it's going to freak out and flop around like a fish out of water. I don't know if that was too convoluted of a story. Sorry. No, it makes sense. I mean, mine because I would I had a you know one of the five gallon buckets with the the gasket lid, the screw right. on threaded right. lid. Right. Uh, and she was she would be fine, but 
but the moment she hit the bottom of that bucket, it was now like, you know, and, and for a while she wasn't long enough to be able to get to the top of that bucket and get out. But one of right. the last, the, the last couple times that I, I had to clean that cage, <clears throat> uh, dude, like she hit the bottom and it was like a freaking rocket. And it yep. was like, it, like I said, it keeps you on your toes. It's like, Oh, Oh crap. But, you know, when you have, and it's, I've, I've mentioned that previously too, with, any snake, you know, be it Ganyasoma or the Aatrox, you know, if you've got a species that's super spazzy and takes off, especially with venomous stuff, like, you just let it go. Don't yeah. try and, like, grab, like, not grab it, but try and stop it from hitting the floor or anything like that. Like, I've learned very quickly with mine, too, that when I opened up the, the cage, uh, you know, took out the hide and she was in there, that as soon as she got touched by anything, she'd just start doing laps around that Neodisha. Yeah. And so I, and after 10, 20 seconds, she'd stop and she'd just sit there, you know, and do the rattlesnake thing. Uh, yeah. And it's just like knowing that that's that, you know, that's what that snake's going to do. Uh, even that scrub, you know, I know that he's either first, he's going to just kind of, he's going to try and take off, uh, which he moves pretty quick. Actually, it's kind of surprising. Uh, and then once he figures out that that isn't doing anything, that's when he'll he'll anchor himself on something and he just sits there, like completely essed up, like completely vertical. Uh, and it's just like you learn these these quirks with different snakes, and you just gotta let them kind of do their thing. Right. Uh, you know, if you're keeping venomous, clearly you're gonna have them in a room where that they can't escape from. Right. Um, but even like the Ganyasoma, you know, they they don't hook well at all they're like the wet noodle thing you know they're yeah. very awkward and just kind of fall and right. um, and i've had they've they've gone on the floor a couple times too and it's like i'm not gonna let them disappear into something that i can't get them but it's like it's not that big of a deal if they're yeah give them their moment to give to them yeah that. like right. they calm them and down a little bit gives them some time to to figure it out a lot of people don't realize this but if i told you to walk out your front door sprint to the end of your block and sprint back. When you get back to your front door, you're going to be tired, right? You're going to have built up a tremendous amount of lactic acid in your muscles. Well, the same thing happens with these snakes. So you have an Atrox that's in a Neodisha and it's coiled up, it's rattling. All of a sudden you go to hook it and you've now provoked it. And its first defense is going to be, get the hell out of there. It's going to, it's mm -hmm. going to haul ass. So now it's doing laps, right? It's doing laps. It's spazzing out. It's a fish out of water. And then it goes back to stopping. Well, that's actually a good moment to get in there because despite it being more agitated and more defensive, it's now built up lactic acid and now it's exhausted the same way that you are from running down the block. So if providing that it's a good positioning or you know the, uh, the stars have aligned in your favor in terms of removing said animal from the enclosure, it, that is an opportune time to remove the animal. And a lot of people get hesitant because they're like, oh my God, that thing just freaked out on me. Clearly it's not happy. I should give it time and come back later. And that's a great thought process. I do that my, all the time myself. I say, yeah, this thing ain't happening. I'm going to come back in an hour. But at the same time, gauge, weigh out your pros and cons and gauge the scenario and say, okay, is this an opportune time for me to remove it because it has now exhausted itself temporarily. So... Um, there are rattlesnake species that are super chill. I mean, Massasaguas are pretty good. Pygmies are pretty good. Uh, pygmies don't, in my opinion, uh, pygmies don't like to ride hooks. So I always have two hooks handy for a pygmy because you can't tail it. It's physically too, it's too small. You're going to get bit. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the, the whole concept of treadmilling the animal with two hooks, you're just going to have to do it, you know? Um, but like some of the larger species like cane brakes and timbers, uh, I equate them very much the same as uh, snouted cobras. Snouted cobras are big, giant puppy dogs until they're not. And, <laughs> you know, I, I have a friend who had abandoned snouted for poof, 10 years. And that was one of our trainer snakes for, for class because the thing was seven foot long. It was as thick around as a, a, a I don't want to say like, you know, uh, like a tangerine. It was, it was, it was a thick, thick animal, but it rode a hook really well. It would always allow you to tail it. It never hooded up. And then one day it just went bananas and like, like psycho snake bananas. And uh, the same thing happens with, with Hordus. You know, you've got this timber that's super chill. You tail it all the time. And after four or five years, he says, you know what? I don't feel like you touching my butt today. I don't like you anymore. I don't like you anymore. You know, it is not a pretty day outside. It is Monday. And and now you, God forbid, something bad happens, you know. Um, I feel like a lot of the crotalid species in North America are easily managed with a single hook. Um, Western Dimebacks, obviously. Uh, Eastern Dimebacks are a snake unto themselves, in my opinion. They are the largest venomous snake in North America, and they will remind you of that. Um, I've had snakes that were only four foot long, but... It, it, no it fear. Was, no fear. It just it knew that it could end me, and it wasn't going to take any chances, and they want to get away. you know. And that goes back to what you were saying. Let them do their thing for a minute. You know, providing it's it's in safe and escape mm -hmm. room and all that stuff. But you know, Eastern Diamondbacks. You know, you see a big six foot Eastern. You, you still don't want to really tail it. I mean, unless it's because of the weight of the animal. You know, you're trying to distribute the weight appropriately. But like, I've seen it where someone had a big giant Eastern and they tailed it, and you heard the vertebrae popping in its back because the weight of yeah, the sheer body, weight. Right. So, like for example, a lot of people when they tail rattlesnakes. Um, they usually go with what I would call a high hold, where instead of placing the tail into the palm of your hand and rolling your fingers around it, they almost come up on top. And it's actually a good technique because it allows you to abort and ditch the animal real quick. Yeah. You don't have to You don't get all caught up. You yeah. don't have to roll your hand out. You're already on top and you can just abort real quick mm -hmm. and let that let the snake hit the floor. But the problem is is you want to have the high hold because now it's going to put the weight distribution on the first third of the animal. And the animal doesn't have the ability to pull itself back as easily. Mm -hmm. But because of that, if you're not supporting that first third appropriately, now you're causing drag on that vertebrae and you're going to hear those vertebrae popping. You're essentially breaking their back. So it, it, it's kind of a, a balancing act, but you still would want to have a tail higher than lower to, to be out of that, out of that backup range. You know what I mean? I've uh, only dealt with an Eastern Diamondback once. And that was probably in like 2007. Somehow my dad had ended up taking one off someone's property. Um, and that wasn't a massive one. It was probably four feet if I had to guess. And I mean, its head was freaking huge. And I have yet to find a more like regal, respect demanding yeah species that like you were saying at least north american species that yeah. was like it was almost like a freaking tiger man like you see a tiger in the zoo 
And it's a complete like it. You see them on TV, and that's one thing. But you yeah. go and see one in a zoo, and it's like holy crap! Like yeah. you then sort of get a better idea of like the power and the ability and the and so seeing an Eastern Diamondback that one time was just like holy crap! I mean, it was awesome. Yeah, know? and that it was just it was just a big snake, man, and it was it's just commands it like it knows. Kind of like you were saying. I mean, I don't like to anthropomorphize or anything like that, but like they did. You just it wasn't like the Aatrox where it was like, okay, I've done everything I can to get away and now I can't. So now it's just going to stay here. This was like, I'm going to be moving sideways while I'm arched up, you know, and then I'm going to get in the crook of a tree and I'm just going to sit there and just wait for you to, to come too close kind of thing. And it was just, yeah, I don't know. It was just majestic. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's one of the most majestic animals out there. Um, another thing that I, 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 <clears throat> I don't want to go too far into this. Cause like, this is some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the, the venomous etiquette videos on YouTube. Um, but especially when, when using two hooks, uh, you have a balancing act, right? You're balancing the animal on two hooks, right? So imagine taking uh, a piece of al dente spaghetti and holding it on two fingers, right? <clears throat> so you want to, you want to keep them ideally shoulder width apart because the wider you have it, the, the more the more wide you have these two hook heads, the more mm -hmm. droop you're going to get in the, in the middle. Right. So we want equal parts. So if you div, if you divvied up a snake into thirds, right, you have first third being the head and the main neck, the middle third being the main body section, and the, the third third being from, say, in front of the vent to the tip of the tail. You want the hooks to be at those cuts of the third, right? Right. Um, but we also can use those hooks as a rudder to steer the animal um, – in the direction that we want. So in theory, the higher the tail of the animal is, the higher the back third is, the more prone the snake is going to be to go backwards. And it's no different than if I hung you upside down by one leg, you're going to want to roll up and, and try and fight, fight, fight that one leg that's being dangled. Mm -hmm. So the higher the tail, the animal's going to go backwards. The lower the tail, the animal is essentially feeling like it's falling and it's going to advance yeah. forward. So, if the snake, if the snake's head is on my right side, in theory, I don't have to move my right hook. I only have to move the left. And I'm gonna feather that hook up and down to maintain balance. But let's say the snake starts to back up or starts to make a U-turn, I can then bring that left hook down and cause the snake to go forward or to the right. So using the one hook as a rudder in terms of the elevation of the rear third, I can then feather how fast or how slow I want that snake to move or whether I want that snake to go backwards or to go forwards. Well, I think the, like the, the width of that actual hook too, like oh, obviously sure. with, with a massive Eastern, you're going to use right. like a Python hook with the wide, wide mm -hmm. mouth. We'll um, see. I would, I would argue that because to me that shepherd's crook is, although very useful in distributing the weight, if you have an animal that's extremely uncooperative, that hook's irrelevant. I need something that's lighter and faster and more nimble in, in theory to, to, to direct that animal. So what I've done is instead of having the beam or the foot of the hook straight up, what I'm going to do, like, let's imagine that this is trying to get this on the camera. Okay. So this is, this is my, uh, my hook. You, this is the foot right here. This is mm -hmm. the, the shaft coming out this way. Right. Yep. Ideally, I don't want the weight right here. I'm going to shift my hook. And I'm going to distribute the weight along the, the foot of the hook. And like now the, it's the blade, the blade. Well, we, we call that the foot, right? Yeah. So Chris Woodcock taught me that. So 
now that I've got the foot pitched at an angle, if this is the snake's body, right, and these are the vertebrae, I don't want the hook directly across. I want mm -hmm. the hook at an angle. So now not only am I distributing the weight of those vertebrae or the pressure on those vertebrae, I'm also covering a wider surface area of the animal. The only problem yeah, there's more is, contact points. Right, there's more contact points. The only problem is that because I've now changed the pitch of that foot, I'm more apt to have the animal slide off mm -hmm. or I have to make sure that my rudder or my rear hook or my, my tailing in my hand, that pitch of the third third is directed appropriately because it's going to cause that animal to back up because you've now shifted that weight and it has a better platform to stand yeah. on. It's going to be, it's going to feel more comfortable. It's going to want to back up because his ass is in the air. So, and that this is the balancing act that we play when we deal with two hooks. And obviously well, what do you do with like specific. big, what do you do with big gaboons? Big gaboons. I use two hooks and I personally use two standard size hook heads and I do what I just said and I shift it to the side. And if it's a, if it's a gaboon that's say over five foot, I'll, I'll usually tail it. Um, but unlike the rattlesnake where I'm going to yoke that tail up real straight, I'm going to keep that tail as flat as possible. And oftentimes I don't even roll my fingers. I just lay my hand there flat and it's literally from the vent back because if that snake goes to swap around, I can just slide my hand out and I'm good. And again, this is all, this is stuff that should not be tried right out of the gate. I am not condoning tailing large gaboons or any gaboons. I'm not condoning tailing rattlesnakes of any kind, but should you have to, this may be a, a way that you might want to look at it. How do you feel about the wider hooks? Brandon asked. Like, uh, do you feel like there is a use? Like they do have, they do serve a purpose. Sure. I absolutely feel. Or like do that you now. think that they're kind of like a, a preference or not necessarily a necessity, but just a convenience? I think that the convenience is there. I do not think it's a necessity. I think it is a, a an apt tool to have in your arsenal. Um, I personally don't own one simply because I just I just never got one. Um, I used to have a big python hook from Midwest that we used to use with Retex. And the sole purpose of that hook was to drag the animal to us. You, you could not lift that animal up on that hook. It was just, it was just not possible. Um, using it in that regard, I think, is great. But the problem is it's so big and clunky that you're not going to be able to – you're not going to be able to articulate a large rattlesnake or a large viper in, in any real – professional way you're just kind of sloshing them around um the ones that are more of a duck bill i think work way better my only problem is is that if you look at the standard you know terrestrial heavy-bodied snake mechanics it is extremely difficult to get that duck bill underneath their body to the mm -hmm. point where you're almost keeping the hook shaft completely perpendicular with the floor and raking it or like using it like a gardening hoe underneath it and then when i lift up I still have a pressure point because depending on how that the blade of that shoe or that duck bill is pressured against the animal, it's not equally distributed. It's not equally distributed, excuse me, as uh, uh, efficiently as if you would have the, the standard hook size shoe shifted at a different angle, distributing that weight across multiple vertebrae. Right. Yeah. It, again, this is all my opinion. You know what I mean? No, it's not. It's fact. It's fact. And Scott Iper says, if you cannot use two hooks, you should not be keeping venomous. Um, I'm a firm believer in that. I really am. You know, I've double hooked, I've double hooked mambas. I've double hooked pygmy rattlesnakes. Like, 
is, is something that you need to do. You need to learn it's how to use skill that you would rather have and not need than need another. Correct. Correct. Everyone's going to tail a snake eventually. Everyone wants to tail a snake because we want to touch it. You know what I mean? It's it's inherent. We're enamored by these animals. We want to touch it. Certain species, you you just don't do it. And if you and you wait for you you wait for the time where maybe you have to do a medical checkup and the animal's restrained in a tube, or or, or something something in that regard where you're you're more safe that you get to actually play and touch. You know what I mean? I had to tube that freaking tandem board just to get him back in his cage because he had he was so I put him in a temporary tub in one of the racks while I right. cleaned because I have to take everything out and replace the pads. I'm gonna switch them to Cypress just to avoid having to do this in the future. Yeah, yeah, but. I'd put them in, you know how the the like the Rubbermaid and Sterilites have that one clasp in the middle? And then there's yeah. that tiny little gap on the hinge. He had gotten his tail like all wrapped up in that. And so I had to tube him and then like yeah. Rubik's Cube his body out of that little that little hinge. Yeah. And it was just because like literally he just sat there. He did that thing that I was talking about. Like he he started, he ran it first and then when he realized that, that wasn't doing anything, he's like, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll post up right here on the edge of this tub and I'll just wait. Yeah. And so I use like the tubes that I use and I've talked about it are the, uh, those fluorescent light tubes that you get at Lowe's for, I think you use them for transporting fluorescent lights to keep them from getting damaged. I don't, right. I don't exactly know, but they're cheap. You can get them. There's like three and four foot ones. You can get them from Lowe's for like four bucks a piece, cut it in half. You have two tubes. I do not use them for venomous. I use them for boy. If I have to, um, just cause like, sh like shed, like my mail shed. And anytime any of the boy shed, I check them because just like Amazon tree boas, uh, you know, that, that shed on the tail on the end of the tail gets, doesn't come off a lot of the time. So I check just to make sure it, it comes off and I usually tube them to do that. And so these tubes are great for that because they're cheap, they're replaceable, they're easy to clean. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't use them for anything like medically significant venomous, like Right. rattlers or anything like that but for like the purpose of like green trees you know if i have to check green trees for something these tubes work great uh and for like that scrub after 10 minutes of trying to get him to come off of that tub i finally just said screw it i, I tubed him and yeah no more no more issues so yeah yeah. Brad said, I keep hooks everywhere, including house, shop, garage, garage, and vehicles. Yeah. You know, and, and Scott's saying that uh, <clears throat> him and Ty are playing with, <clears throat> excuse me, um, different pointed trowels to increase contact points. I think that's brilliant. Um, I think that that would, in my personal opinion, that would work really, really well with, <clears throat> excuse me, more long-bodied, more high-speed stuff. Um, a lapid based stuff. You're talking but, about like the three fingered. Yeah, the trowel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that would work great. My only concern would be using with something that has a little more dexterity and like hanging onto it. You know what I mean? But again, I, I think that would be great for something like a Cobra or a Brown or a crate. But using that on like Trip Mercers would probably not be the best idea. It'd be a nightmare. Yeah, it'd be a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> you know, Scott also says that they more or less never tail Oxyranus until they hit four foot. Um, even still, I think uh, I, I've tailed a four foot, you know, Taipan, but it was extremely nerve wracking uh, to the point where I made myself the only Say guy. The least. The, yeah, I made myself the only guy in the room. 
and I just was very slow and relaxed and methodical because that's another very volatile species that, you know, they're fine one minute and then they see the, you know, the, the hair or the dust coming through the light of the window and they just, they just snap. Um, so it, it all comes down to your personal experience. It comes down to the individual species. It comes down to the individual animal of that species. So, um, but I would say definitely learn to use two hooks. You know, I teach all of my students to start, you get, get two hooks, get two different lengths, whether it be a 30 and a 40 or whatever, and start picking stuff up in your house. You know, if you can balance a pillow on two hooks, it's a great start. You know I mean? You'd be surprised how many people can't do that. And it comes down to proper hook technique. And again, we're going to cover most of this stuff in the venomous etiquette videos on YouTube. Go check it out. Um, but like picking up a TV remote control, can you do it with one hook? Can you do it with two hooks? Try it. You know, things like that. You know, practice at home. Practice makes perfect. You know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Practice. So. That's scrub, man. I love that guy, dude. Like in the mornings, he he. It's funny. I wake up to turn on all the lights and stuff because all none of my lights are on automatic timers. I like to. I, I feel. Yeah. That if you don't put them on timers, that forces you to check on things yourself because you have to plug in the lights yourself and turn on the switches and everything like I that. Just, I just leave them in the dark and fuck them. Um, <laughs> and that scrub every morning, dude. He's like pushed up against the front right corner. Yeah. And his little head will poke up over the edge and just watch me. <laughs> This little nice bug-eyed bastard just sitting there looking at me. And like if I walk he's in the room, he comes he comes out of that his hide and just watches. And then as soon as he realizes he's not getting any food, then he meh, disappears back into the darkness. But awesome. I love it. I love it. What and, made you think of, huh? what's that? Well, no, say what you're gonna say. I say he, he had a, another BM and it looked worm free. So good. Excellent. I, did, I never noticed any worms. So. He, had, he had some worms in the last one, that's for sure. Did he really? Oof. That's when I was like, okay, time to get some more yeah. panic here and time to get some syringes. The more I found out more, I could buy a tractor supply, which was surprising because I didn't think they just you could get hypodermic needles anywhere. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of the shelf. There's a lot of normal uses for them, you know what I mean? Especially in farmland, you know, mm -hmm. um, or agricultural environments. Um, I was going to say is you're obviously way more observant of him than I was. Um, he hid a lot. I really didn't play with him a lot. Well, he but, lives in his hide, but at yeah. night I'll go in and he'll come out. But during the day, like he'll, I guess he'll, he'll feel that door close. Cause I, because of the cat, I keep the door closed whether I'm in there or not. And uh, his little face is just sitting there staring at me as soon as that door closes. And then it's, it's funny, man. He's, he's a trip. But yeah, the more I think about, the time that I had, because I had him for a little over a year, and the time that now the time that you've had with him, I really don't think that he was a, uh, a captive animal. I think he was just a long term uh, wild caught, or maybe even not, maybe a short term. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I hit him with one dose of panic here. It wasn't a lot, and I, I was like Dom had with her chondro, where it just worms galore as soon as she dosed it. Um, I was kind of expecting that, but that didn't happen. And so maybe that first dose was enough to, to knock out a lot of them. I'm going to hit him again just in case, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. Okay. But what made you, uh, what made you think of the, the crotalid stuff? That needles go to Amazon. Yeah. Tractor supply sells them super cheap. You can get the syringes and then you can get the, they have different gauge needles. And I think you can get like a six pack for, five or six bucks 
So that's nice to know that I can get them because I also I, I use Safeguard, which is like a just it's, it's sold as a goat dewormer, but it's Fenbendazole. It's the same stuff that that Panicure is. Uh, yeah, and that's about the extent of what I'll say as far as that goes because I'm not a vet, and I think you should talk to a vet before you do anything. I would concur. Um, but yeah, just watching that show last night made me think about. Oh, that's they, right. They were like really trying to like these Aatrox were having none of it. And they were like, you know, he was teaching them. He's like, yeah, you know, you got to be careful because when you do this, it's going to like as fast as possible. And, you know, you won't even see it happen. And it was like, oh my God. It's like, yeah. Why can't you just observe it? Yeah. Why do you have to tail it? Because it's on television, bro. They got to make it exciting. They got to add that sound effect. Whack, boom, you know. Um, and of course, I'm sitting there watching it and like calling bullshit on the whole time. My parents were like, that was your hero years ago. I was like, yeah, but you look at it now and it's not the same, man. It's not the same. It's not. He was reckless. Look, Steve Irwin, whatever people's opinion of him, there was a lot of reckless stuff. But at the same time, he wasn't doing it recklessly per se. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, think about what you just described. You just described someone teaching a child how to tail a snake that shouldn't be tailed. You know what I mean? There was countless times where, you know, Steve Irwin would have a, a scorpion on a on a rock, and it, he would be rotating this rock, and he would say, you know, it looks like this, it looks like that, but I don't know what this is, so I'm not going to put it in my hand. And, like, it nowadays, they would just Google it and be like, oh, yeah, it looks good, put it in their hand. I'm because- not denying that Steve Irwin did not do a lot for a getting kids like me interested in this stuff or the fact that he did a lot for wildlife in general. He did. Absolutely. Right. He was like borderline sainthood in that department. Okay. Yes. yes. But when it came to venomous stuff, I watch it now and my butthole puckers up real tight. Well, it's also the running joke is that the reason why Steve Irwin never used a snake hook is because he didn't want to get caught doing it. <laughs> That's the running joke. Because I guess you get yelled at in Australia if you have a snake hook. <laughs> Scott can probably chime in. I'm sure Scott has nothing but wonderful yeah. things to say about him. Yeah. But uh, like they were like while they were showing him teaching baby Bob how to tail this Aatrox, they were like going to flashbacks of when he was in Arizona and he was like literally free handling this big Aatrox, like this diesel one. And it was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I don't remember that, man. Like there was a point where he was, it was on the ground and it was coiled up, ready to go, and he was doing the thing where like he had the one knee on the ground, where he was crouched down, and that thing. I was looking at the distance, dude. I was like, if that thing wanted to go, it could totally reach out and touch you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at it like that's no. Yeah, yeah. Well, how about this? I had a friend who. does a lot of online content and they were going out to Arizona to meet up with some people and the herpers they were with, which is surprising because a lot of the people that live in Arizona that are herpers, they're pretty well savvy on the native venomous stuff. Um, but I guess the people he went with were not. And he called me at like, what was two in the morning, my time. He's like, Hey man, we got these rattlesnakes. Um, I got a snake hook. I, I want to tell them, you know, do you think they're long enough? And he sends me this picture of three, like two and a half, three foot Mojaves 
and I was like, do not tell that. Like, use two hooks, you know, and tell people if you really want to make it sound scary or dangerous or whatever, tell them, hey, this is a very unpredictable species with a good strike range and a very, very keen ferocity of defense. I'm not going to put my hands on it. And uh, not only did it shock me that him and the Herpers didn't know what it was, but he went, I'm not doing any of the, the bit, so to speak, because of what I said. And I don't care. I don't care that he missed that on the content because him and those other people were safer because I told them, don't fuck with it. You know what I mean? Because it's a fucking Mojave and it will light you up. It's literally... Yep. Western time back on like medical steroids. So, and I, like the whole needle thing, I was just surprised because I feel like at one point when I, I was I worked at Walgreens for a while, like I feel I thought that needles, like hypodermic needles, were regulated. Like you couldn't just you had to have a prescription or something. You could just go and buy them. But I could be I could be wrong. I don't know. I was just surprised that there was like super easy access. You know? Yeah. Like if yeah. I were someone that was, you know, an opiate addict or something like that, I'd be like, well, I'll just go to tractor supply. You know, just... Well, now they know Justin G's. It was surprising is all. I don't know. Maybe there's something different about that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Selfie sticks with your phone is a snake hook with a camera. Scott said, Erwin was reckless. He does get a pass because he is dead. Okay. I mean, the whole, sting, like the whole stingray thing. I don't... I If I was swimming over a stingray, I wouldn't expect it to do what it did, but I'm also not a stingray person. Scott also added he should not get a pass. Yeah. I don't, it's different because, I mean, we, like I was a kid when he was the hot thing. I'm sure you weren't far ahead of me. Yeah, I was a kid. 100%. You know? Like I had the action figures and stuff. But like I said, I look back on it now and it's just like, man, like it, it, frankly, it's, it's kind of surprising that something didn't happen sooner in terms of venomous stuff. Yeah. And who knows, man, he could have been hit a bunch of times and we would never know. I don't know. I don't like to speak ill of the guy. Like I said, he was a childhood hero. Right. It's just over time, your life experiences and views change on things, and you realize that some people, even if they were awesome, just do things that you don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that. But good rattlesnake, keep, good rattlesnake species to keep. Um, I would go with any of the Lepidus or Lepidus clobberi. Um, those are phenomenal species they're hardy once you get them established uh i think they're great species uh they come from a wide assortment of of terrain so you can have a lot of fun making the viv up um pygmy rattlesnakes are great as long as they're old enough to really eat good something good and solid um baby eat cicada like copperheads well yeah i'm sure i mean i told you that one time i found the pygmy it was hunting beetles yeah yeah, it's just sitting on the side of the road, just and like beetles are just crawling all over the place, and it's just like grabbing a beetle, you know, or striking and missing a beetle, you know, because beetles are quick. Um, and uh, I want to say, I want to say that prairie rattlesnakes are good, 
Um, I don't have a lot of experience with them, um, but they come in uh, some great looking colors, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also, they're, they're a good sized rattlesnake that will keep you on your toes, but at the same time, not be so big that you would even have to tail it. I mean, they are, from what I, what everything I've, I've seen and read, they seem pretty feisty, like Atrox levels of, of neurotic. Yeah. I would say stay away from, um, especially if you're just getting into rattlesnakes, stay away from any of the Central and South American stuff. Uh, it is not, it is not the norm. Uh, I personally don't think that Central and South American rattlesnake species are in any personality related to North American stuff. Um, I will also say stay away from the uh, Pacific group. So Northern Pacific, Southern Pacific, you know, Black Diamonds. I would say stay away from that as your first rattlesnake because that is another snake species that is way more toxic than people would imagine uh, on that Mojave level. Um, I love the brick red noise. Oh, yeah. And way more defensive. Super defensive. Unicolor. Henry, nobody keeps unicolor, right? No, no one keeps unicolor. Yeah, I'm excited. I want to do more with Lepidus. I do. I'm I'm a Clabberite freak. I got my Clabberite hat on right now. Little Franklin Mountain. I still got to hit up Kyle and get that that female from him. Mm Mm-hmm. I honestly just forgot about it with COVID and everything. I'm sure he did too. I think so. I've been thinking as of late that maybe once my child is older and out of the house, I may get into back into, to venomous, be it native or small arboreal exotic stuff. Okay. I think it could be. I I don't even think that you would have to even wait for her to be out of the house. I think that she is a smart I would girl prefer for her age. Too. Right. But I think that she's a smart girl for her age. She's obviously uh, knows what's, <clears throat> excuse me, knows what's what with the animals you have, you know, and she's not, she's not going in there playing with the chance now when you're not home. You know what I mean? Because no, the chance so, is out playing with her. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you just burned yourself, bro. Good job. Good job. Um, but yeah, I'll be I the think- first one to pipe up and say I'm an idiot. Yeah, well, you said it, I didn't. Um, but yeah, I think that when she's older, you 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 evaluate the scenario and go from there. You know what I mean? You know, get a get a copperhead when she's sixteen yeah. in high school and put a lock on the cage and you know a camera in the room and go from there. And if you know her first boyfriend sticks his hand in there, it's not your problem. <laughs> or if I stick his hand in there, it's not my problem. Yeah. Right. Let's test how serious he is about the relationship. Yeah. You just come out freaking cane breaks on your shoulders like a Baptist church. Yeah. Hail Satan, brother. You want to take my daughter on a date? Let me introduce you to Charlie. Unicolor are the prettiest, if that's what Henry's saying. I think he's talking about lips, but. But the last thing on the agenda, because we didn't get to it last week. Mm. What is going to happen when all this COVID stuff is is if it ever ends a hundred percent? Like okay. if we get to a point where we can look back and be like, man, remember the chaos that COVID was? Isn't it nice now that we can go out and do whatever we want? Yeah, yeah. Because I suspect initially shows are going to be big. I'm already hearing 
Daytona this year is going to be pretty serious as far mm-hmm. as vendors and you know Tinley hasn't been happening. Yeah. Um, well, my prediction is this: shows as a whole, take the big wigs out of it, take the Pomona out of it, take the Tinley, take the even take the, like the White Plains out of it, like a, like take the big shows out of it. You have you know uh, her uh, some of your Herb shows, Repticon, that kind of stuff. I have a feeling that the individuals that frequented those shows as vendors maybe had their online sales augmented because of COVID and may feel like they possibly may not necessarily need to go to those shows. They can post something on social media saying, Hey, we're not attending the show, but we are doing a sale or, you know, Hey, contact us and we can do delivery to the show or whatever. But I have a feeling you're going to see a lot more vendors come out of the woodwork that Mm -hmm. didn't before and now they're like okay well the show vendor you know attendance is down now's a good time for me to get into the show circuit so to speak um, which i think is great you know more the merrier um in terms of uh the community as a whole i see a lot more field herpers or, or attempting to field herp you know starting in your backyard people that got into it because they were stuck at home with nothing exactly else exactly you know the more iNaturalist kids so to speak um, and I also feel that uh, we're already seeing it, but vivariums are coming back in a big way, especially now that we have racks that we can make into vivariums. So I really see the captive husbandry blossoming more than it's already at. I feel like right now, I feel like the bulb on the flower is just starting to open and no one really knows if it's going to be a full bloom or if it's just going to be like a partial bud. I really feel like through 2021, I feel like that flower is going to open beautifully and, and we're going to have more more eclectic and exotic vivaria. You should be a poet. Why? I don't know. That was beautiful. I'm trying to be a writer for this magazine. You know, it's called uh, uh, Herbiculture Magazine. Do you realize? Are you planning on getting said poems out on a on a regular I said, basis? I said I'm trying to write. I'm I'm trying. To write. I didn't say I was. I'm trying to write. November. Um, hey Phil, what am I getting that 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 hook making article? Oh, this issue. End of November. Oh, a, I'm going to do it next issue. December. When am I getting that one? Demic. That don't stop your fingers from working. It does, man. I'm exhausted from work. Oh, man. I just kept moving it to the next issue. There was, I won't lie, there was a couple nights when I was like, do I go herping? Do I write that article? Dude, I wrote that a Boyga article for this next issue, and it took me like three days to crank out like three pages. Like, I was procrastinating like crazy. Like, I, I love writing, but I hate writing at the same time. Yeah. Mostly because it's when I'm at work and I'm constantly having to stop and take care of customers and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's my job, but it's like, it's when you're on a good train of thought and you of course. stop and then somehow jump back on and then stop and jump back on. It's like, Oh my God, I'm just going to sit here and play games on my phone instead. Exactly. And that's, that's why I don't like, I couldn't do it at work. I couldn't write like a paragraph here, a paragraph there. I couldn't do it. I wait until the evening time, you know, after dinner and I, I put my phone on silent and I just try and cram out whatever I can. Um, but what's funny is right after I went to Woody's, I wrote like a good three or four paragraphs of like getting into the article just so I could kind of lay the foundation. And of course I had like my notes from being there and, and I had all the pictures and, you know, I kind of 
formatted and, and I made like a, a, a game plan of how I wanted to write the article. But Saturday night, I think it was. Yeah, Saturday night, I crammed out like, like 1,200 words on that. But the problem is, is that I'm so meticulous, I'm, I'm rewriting stuff. And now, you know, like they have like Apple Speak. So yeah. I, I put it in Apple Speak. I put the headphones in, and like instead of instead of uh, uh, reading it myself, and in, you know, because in your mind, you may read it how you want it to be written, but you left out a, a, a conjunction or you left mm -hmm. out a punctuation of some kind, and it doesn't sound right. But the the speak reading it to you audibly, you can hear where it doesn't make sense and make your uh, you know edits. So I've really been enjoying that a lot. But yeah, I mean, I pumped out like 1,200 words that night just because I was like, fuck, I got to get this out. This is going to kill me. <laughs> so did you read it or not? I have not read it yet. I literally just started working on design and stuff today. I'm pretty okay. behind. Um, did you like look at the pictures? Just... the pictures come out good or not? Yeah, pictures are good. Okay, cool. Are you going to use that one picture as the cover? No. Fuck. You're lucky those boys are cute. I've been playing in that article for a while, though. Yeah. And, like, as I was writing it, you know, it's basically the, the Cliff Notes version of the article is, like, me getting my cyania, raising them up, breeding them, how I've dealt with the eggs and the babies. And none of it's meant to be from any position of, like, authority as far as breeding boy is my first clutch. Um Basically, it was it was a layout of here's what I did, here's the people that I talked to and what they told me to do. It's the um, road to success. It's more or less like this yeah. isn't meant to be a guide necessarily. This is just literally how I'm doing it, which is pretty much how I approach anything when it comes to people asking me for how I do things. It's like you can talk to other people. I advise that you actually do. This right. is just what's worked for me. This is what I've done. So, uh, yeah. So I started working on design today. Um. It should be done by the end of the month, no problem. I realized today that this is the short month, so yeah, I'm sitting here thinking I had like over a week, and I look and I'm like, oh, I got six days, so you'll get it. I got, I mean, I got a like two or three articles laid out today and done, so I made good headway. Um, as far as like my sort of post-COVID thing, I think obviously it changed a lot with a lot of industries like people realizing I don't need an office space that I'm paying for when I have employees that are a do more at from home because they're not, you know, they're getting to, to work quote unquote an hour early. Yeah. You know, instead of the commute and stuff like that. Um, you know, that's money that people could be using for other stuff other than a lease. But I think shows initially are going to really, really explode. Um, I think it's the same thing too, where maybe people realize they don't necessarily need shows to sell snakes now. Yeah. Uh, but part of that is also because people were shopping online more. So yeah. Kind of balances, you know, negates each other. Um, but I do agree. I mean, I think it's, people are going to, are going to get into shows more, uh, as far as vending. Um, and I don't know. I really think at some point we're going to see virtual shows and not in the sense of what we've seen in the past where it's like a handful of people streaming and having animals for sale that they show you. Like I'm talking about literally like VR headsets, 
you know, I at some point I feel like that's going to become a thing. Is right. people are literally going to be going to shows from their living room, and you know, you have your little VR headset and you're going from table to table, and I don't know, because the only issue I had with like the virtual shows was, you know, you can look at an animal, but you can't really like look at an animal you know you can yeah. see it but you can't really see the fine details of it right uh, right so i don't know i think it'll it'll explode and then i think it'll kind of level off and sort of go back to the way it was is sort of how i see it it would be nice i think carpet fest when carpet fest come back i think those are going to be way bigger than they were before mostly just from people missing them um But it'll be nice when everything's sort of back to normal if we ever, whenever we get back to that point. Yeah. Who knows when that'll be, but. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I just remembered I have a great picture of a Eastern Diamondback that Matt and Jamie found up in up by them. Um, one of their bird friends, uh, it, this one particular house that kept getting in their chicken coop and uh I guess they had they had you know corralled the snake into a, a bucket or a can or a rubbermaid tub or something, and they basically were like, "Hey, Matt and Jamie, you know, will you go re- relocate this somewhere else so that it's not continuing to try and eat our chickens?" And I wound up taking the animal out to let it go on the road, like away from the road, and it kept going into the road. So I wound up tailing the snake just so that I could move it to the tree line, you know, because for whatever reason it wanted to go back on the dirt. Um, so this is actually, in my personal opinion, would be an appropriate size to tail with an appropriate sized hook while doing the splits. Uh, well, I have to, because now I have to, I have to distance myself from the animal. Um, so, and you'll notice how I have the weight distributed fairly appropriately because I don't want that tail too high where it's going to sag, but at the same time, I'm still letting the animal think that it has the traction on the road to, to go in the direction it wants to go. And obviously I'm spreading my feet wider. You know, they jokingly call it the, the Phil power stance just because I'm short. That, <laughs> snake, that snake is literally taller than I am. So to distance myself more, I spread the feet apart. Um, I'll also make note to never wear a baggy shirt ever again, because I am not that fat. It's like watching Cody work with the giant mambas. He's not that tall, you know. Yeah. I mean, even like those mambas are even longer than like taller than me. So I mean, to be especially those like the big blacks and the you know the the large westerns and stuff. Yeah. Like even for me, that would be tough. So I'm like mad props to Cody for doing what he does, man. Because yeah, that's a, that's a lot to deal with. Yeah. Um, then Brandon Valentine asked, "Do you think?" it could die down at all since everybody might go back to normal everyday, like day-to-day life, which, yeah, but I think there's always, like I was saying, like people are going to realize there's a lot of things that we were doing before that they don't need, like office space and um, realizing that people can work remotely and still get stuff done. Um, So I don't know. I mean, there's still going to be things that I think linger from what we learned with, with being stuck at home and stuff. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, every day, day to day life, I think we'll, we'll kind of go back to normal and maybe attendance will either go back to what it was before or die down a little bit, but who knows Yeah. weather predictions. 
that's we're predicting. Yeah. But I'm thinking it's bedtime. Yeah, it's about the witching hour. So, show was brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. You can see their their logo. The camera's reversed, right up here. We're both struggling. Find them on Facebook. You can see it in the little the the ticker tape down here. Facebook.com slash Puget Sound Pythons. Is that a link? If I can I click that? No, it's can't. not a link. No. Okay. And then there's a Snakes and Stogies Facebook group. Yep. Um, the March raffle will be happening soon. And then I actually I'm gonna do a post and see if people would rather do the zip like do an order for the Zippo lighters instead of the sampler for the for the month of March. If people would rather do these than a sampler, um, do like an initial order of those. These things are awesome. So it's got Brothers of the Leaf, Students of the Serpent. Love it. In like a army green. So check that out. Uh, I guess I'll get a consensus on that within the next day or two. I'll make a post and ask. And um, I don't know. Like I haven't done them yet just because, you know, we have the raffle and we have the samplers and, you know, people, uh, people spending money on, on other stuff to say, Hey, throw another, you know, 30 or 40 bucks in there to do the lighters. It's kind of, kind of a lot to ask. So yeah. we'll probably just swap out the sampler for next month and do an order for those and make that happen and then go back to our normal monthly pack. Or like I may it. just, I may just throw a few together and if people want them, they can buy them, you know, instead of doing like 10, I'll only do five or something. I don't know. We'll sure. see. But Sounds good. Jeff said, keep it up. We love sponsoring the show. Thank you again, guys. And Jeff is in the next issue of the magazine. He did the book review. Nice. On nice. green anacondas. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, we will see y'all next week. Uh, yes. Episode 113 of THP is happening Thursday. I have no idea who we're having on yet. So oh, I got some people. We're, we're going to do some. We're going to do some. Word. All right. Thanks again, guys. Later. Good night.